podcast is brought to you by Uh, 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 here we go Everybody be cool, this is a robbery Need you cool Are you cool? Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to your monthly worship service where we help rejuvenate your soul through the good works of our Lord and Savior, Quentin Tarantino. I am the Reverend Scott Kay, and this is the Church of Tarantino podcast. It's June, and that means we've reached the midway point of our chronological journey through Tarantino's filmography. It also means that we've reached the end of Quentin's 90s-era movies, and what better way to leave the decade than with his Pulp Fiction directorial follow-up, the Elmore Leonard adapted crime drama, Jackie Brown. But before we have you climb into our trunk to help us sell some machine guns over in Koreatown, it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast our first Canadian guest and host of such podcasts as the Rocky Series podcast, the worst of of the best podcast, and it's a long road, the Rambo Series podcast, Mr. Ryan Rebalkin. Welcome, Mr. Rebalkin, and may Tarantino be with you always. Oh, wow. Thank you. That was a very <laughs> uh, very well-written and recited, it's almost very Quentin Tarantino-esque uh, introduction. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Seth Scott. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It could be done shorter, but you know, if you're doing no, a Tarantino no, podcast, it's, it's got to be bombastic. There's got to be a lot more words said than a few. <laughs> a lot of my English no. teachers probably say, you could say more with less. And I'd be like, well. No, it's fantastic. No, I really appreciate that introduction. First Canadian. Wow. That's a. Uh... Okay. Yes. So as far as the main podcast goes, I have had nothing but either friends from England. Mm -hmm. I have an expat from France who I will talk to you about in a second because you're both in the same podcast. And now you are our first Canadian. I've had a couple, actually, I think uh, your friend and now my friend Craig Mm -hmm. and my ex-recording partner, Matt, are the only two American-born who have been on this podcast so far. Oh, wow. That'll change after this month. But, you know, I enjoy the, um, I enjoy finding out what people from different parts of not being in America, you know, how they have seen Quentin Tarantino. I want to see it through different eyes, you know what I mean? Sure. I'm unlike a lot of Americans where it's not just all America all the time. You know, there won't be a lot of American eagles or flags flying behind me as we talk about this. Right. So we won't get a very pro-America uh, stuff, but I'd like to find out how he's reached other people and how he's touched other people and how, you know, seen through the different eyes across the world. I mean, I know you're our northern neighbor, so it's not like right. it's not like you're in Japan and I'm asking someone from a completely the, different yeah. line. You know. We're the... We're the we're the northern Mexicans, you know, we're the yes. we're Mexicans of north. No, <laughs> and you're building no. a wall to keep us out. Which That's I, we're, I would yeah, we're building do. our wall, igloo wall. It's an ice wall. <laughs> so you have a ton, ton of podcasts. You have three. And I just recently listened to your, which is one of my favorite ones, the worst of the best podcasts. I love the concept of that well, thank podcast. You. 
Thank you. I'm really proud of that one. I think that was that was born out of the same what you're doing. I started podcasting with Rocky. Long story short, I don't want to bore any of people that are listening to this show who come because of me because they know the story. But maybe your listeners might be semi-interested, so I'll be very quick. Basically, I love podcasts, and I'm like, and I also like talking. But I, I didn't want to do anything that was going to be like I'm going to say heavily researched. But I, I wanted to fanboy on something. And I'm a huge Rocky fan, so I'm like, oh, let's talk about Rocky. And uh, I've been doing it for like six years in total i've enjoyed uh, talking about the franchise i've had interviews uh, of course rotating guest hosts it's just been a fantastic journey but then the worst of the best was kind of a side project where it's like oh, okay i you know i want to branch out my discussion points and just talk about other things what's great about that show is every episode is a different topic and we have a different subject matter i guess you could say and we basically pick the best of something whether it's a musical artist um, an actor or actress a film director we, we are going to do a quentin tarantino episode one day so i'll keep you on the looking back forward for that. to that okay and i gotta be careful with this uh, show then i don't reveal so how it works is you know so we take the best of something let's say uh, what's one of your favorite bands scott uh, my favorite band is actually pearl jam and you happen to be living just north of where they are yes. located okay. Yeah, so Pearl Jam, we've done an episode, but I'm going to redo them because our episode on them was our first episode, actually, of the show. And it was, we were still figuring out the kinks of how to do our show. It's expanded and grown over the years since then. But what we do with Pearl Jam is I would say, what is your most critically acclaimed album and or best-selling album? We can do both. And then we pick the worst song from that album that's considered to be Pearl Jam's best. Some might say gotcha. 10, might say, but I think Versus is their best album, that sort of thing. So then you pick the worst song. So, and then you just go track by track. So that's how it works. So we don't reveal our worst pick until the very end and that's actually a very small part of the show because really we just talk about the band or the album or the artist and then we uh, reveal independent of, the, of each host the, the worst pick that's how it works and you've done quite a few of them recently with your brother if i'm not mistaken yeah my brother jason my brother ruben was actually it was actually his idea for the show but he's retired from podcasting he just said, <laughs> I'm, I'm done. and not in a bad way he, he just moved on the hobby ended for him and and then my brother jason uh, who's the older brother he said, I'll pick up the mantle. I'll do it with you. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's continue. So with my other brother's blessing, he's like, yeah, please continue the show with our other brother. So uh, the show has stayed in the family, yeah. And those of you listening now, you'll have to go to the March release of it. If you're a Guns N' Roses fan, they talk about Appetite for Destruction, which I thoroughly enjoyed it. And they give you clips of the songs, and it's it's well thought out. It's a very, very good podcast. It's very oh, enjoyable. Thanks, I know you do it once a month, but every time it comes up, I'm like, all right, let's, let's give this a listen. So oh, awesome. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a great show. Thank you so much, Scott. And now, did you just recently start the Rambo one or is yes. that one that's been going because i thought i saw no that's new so again with the uh with the rocky we finished it we've actually started kind of a part two string of it's called one more round the, the rocky series podcast we've restarted the podcast with different hosts that came on late with with uh, going the distance uh, again my brother was the original host but then we moved on because he retired and i revamped that he did show. what rocky I... hasn't been able to do which is retire yeah exactly <laughs> yeah he's smart he's retired uh so I'm now doing It's a Long Road, the Rambo series podcast, which is the same idea. We go through the films in order. Each season will be the film that we're covering, like First Blood is season one. And on that show, Scott, I also have a rotating guest host. So I'll you know, invite you to come on for an episode. Would love like. to. Anytime. Okay. There you go. And it does tie into Tarantino because he said he would like to make a remake, whether he will or not, I don't know. And he thought Adam Driver would mm -hmm. be a good person. Would you agree with that? And would you want to see QT do it? Of course. Yeah, I'm not one of those people who get all mad about remakes. Novels are rewritten or not rewritten. Sort of like great classic novels have been redone over and over again over the years. So think of it like the Christmas Carol movies, right? There's, there's many renditions yes. of the same story. The different actors over time, are, is that remade? Are we 
up in arms because a book has been adapted a hundred times in, in different films. I think films are the same idea. It's a story. And I think if there's a different angle or a different way with different characters, with different effects, even with different filming styles, whether it's improving or not, it, it's okay. And you don't have to watch it either. But I'm one of those people who's like, you know, go ahead, give it a shot, see what you can do with it. And Quentin Tarantino, I mean, look, he was going to redo Star Trek. And I, I really wish he did. And everything he does, I'll watch anyway. So it doesn't, it's frustrating that he, here's the thing about QT that I wish he would stop doing. Stop telling us things that you're going to do and you don't do it. That that You're just teasing the <laughs> I audience. Know, right? I know. I know. Uh, Kill Bill Volume 3, or as we were calling right. it, Kill Bill 2 Volume 3. Because technically right. wouldn't be called Kill Bill because he's already dead. So it's kind of a very right. redundant statement. But yeah, I was looking forward to what he would do with Star Trek. I really was looking yeah. forward to where he, you know, where he would take it. The Kill Bill one would be called Bill Killed. Yes, yes. Well, he originally wanted to do it 10 years after the first one because right. I forget which um, Western it was, Spaghetti Western, that did the similar thing. They they made a movie and then they did their sequel 10 years down the road, similar to like the, the one of the characters was going to get the revenge 10 years down the road. And they actually filmed it 10 years down the road. So I think that was one of the things he wanted to do. And obviously right. that just... Never came to fruition. For Eighteen years whatever ago. Reasons. Eighteen years ago, Kill Bill Two came out. Yeah, I crazy? put that up. To, I don't know if you saw. Yeah, I, I posted yeah. on that today. Yeah, we are recording on Kill Bill Volume Two's 18th anniversary of being released, wow. which is it's insane. It's old enough to Dude. vote now here in America. I don't know what the voting <laughs> age in Canada. Probably twelve, because you know you're probably better people than we are. Yeah, we stop it. We have our issues. We have <laughs> we our issues. Do. Just before we jump into the questions, mm-hmm. when people make remakes, are you a person who obviously you go see them, but are you a kind of person who's like, you want to see there's something new or they do a good job with it when they fall flat and they absolutely just suck. Right. At that point, sometimes it's like, then why, why did you even, why did you waste anyone's time remaking something? Which is why I said, you know, I think QT would do an amazing job right. with a new Rambo. I mean, it would be different than people expected. Rambo would have to talk a lot more. He couldn't just be a right. silent guy. You know what I mean? Or they'd have to have a really great side character because Tarantino loves to write dialogue. Right. So Rambo just wouldn't be able to be a moody guy hiding out in the woods. Right, no, uh, okay, well, Quentin Tarantino remake, I agree. And in the book, I don't know, well, of course, you should, I'm sure you know this, but maybe some listeners know that First Blood was based on a novel. The novel came first. And in the novel, Rambo talks a lot. Well, not a lot, but compared to the film, he actually does talk quite a bit. There's a lot of interaction between him and uh, Sheriff Teasel and the other cops and what have you. So I can totally see how QT would, again, increase the dialogue or make him more spiffy. Quentin Tarantino is also very good at visuals, obviously. So he doesn't have to have constant dialogue he would have great dialogue but he's also a great visual storyteller and i think his uh intensity that he can bring to some scenes like the drama again a very interesting to see what he would do with a cat mouse type movie yeah well, we can only hope. Uh, I don't know if you, how much of you listened to the podcast, but we had a birthday celebration episode mm-hmm. where myself and my special guest, Steve Smith, we had some ideas that we thought. Right. We did not come up with the Rambo one. So maybe I told him uh, we'll do it again at the next birthday. So maybe at the next birthday, I'll bring you on as well. We'll come up with our own Rambo because he is currently about to shoot. As we record this, he has been confirmed that he is in Chicago. Okay. They're getting ready to ramp up the reboot of Justified, that one-off uh, mm-hmm. series right. they're doing. And he's going to at least direct the first episode. So that is already confirmed. Right. He'll be in Chicago as we speak. So by the time this comes out, his episode will probably already be shot. They're going to shoot through August. I don't know. He was scheduled to possibly do two. We'll see how many he does. But he's also expecting baby number two, which means this summer we're coming up on three years since he did uh, Once Upon a Time came out. The longest he went was six years between this movie we're talking about today, Jackie Brown, and Kill Bill which we'll cover mm-hmm. next month. So I feel like we're going on a Jackie Brown Kill Bill length. I think we're going to be another 
two mm. years, maybe three away before he, if he brings out his final. Yeah, that's what I mean. Is is that what he's doing? Is he? I don't know. I is don't he building know. up for his quote unquote final film? So he's doing all these side projects, tinkering. Is he humming and hind? Does he really have a great last story in him? Is this really his last movie? Has he put himself in a corner? Well, he said this mm. stuff, and now he himself is like, well, shit, I gotta. Go out with something. Now, he feels that Once Upon a Time was the movie that will be his, like, magnum opus. Well, I think it's still Pulp Fiction. But, like, he can say this is it. And now he feels like whatever his last movie is, he doesn't have to be big and grandiose. He can, come, you know, just do a almost like a Jackie Brown type story where it's not as right. in your face as some of his more popular movies. But it can still be an amazing film. You know, as you said on a podcast, I will talk about Craig Rosen's podcast, The, the Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slims. You yes. had a great thing. I want to put on a t-shirt. But you basically compared, you used the Hanzo, a short comparison that Bud mm-hmm. does in Kill Bill, and said, when you compare Tarantino movies, you only compare them to Tarantino movies. Because even Tarantino's least are still better than most directors' best. And I, and again, I'm being a Tarantino fan, I'm, I subscribe to that 100%, but I do truly feel that that is, that is the case, and I do feel that no matter what his last movie, if it is his last, will still be better than some people's of course. entire catalog. There's no way he's going to end on a sour note. No, no, no. He's never, he hasn't disappointed me ever. No, he never has. No. No. Well, that'll lead me into then our questions, because I already know the answer to the first one, but are you a huge Tarantino fan? (laughs) Who? Who is he? I had to do a lot of research to find out who this guy was. Yes, of course. Yes. I totally am. I'm I'm a fan, and... I don't know how much you want me to reveal here and there or throughout the conversation as it happens. But yes, I'm I'm definitely a fan in the sense when he announces a project, releases a movie, I I've seen all of his movies in the theater since Kill Bill. And I just uh I love what he does and I love the atmosphere that he provides, the dialogue. You just know it's a Quentin Tarantino film when it starts, those first musical cues, the wide shots. It's just you're in for a a thrill ride. It's just it's amazing. It's a tour de force of what he's able to do with actors and dialogue. I agree 100%. Obviously, guys started a podcast based on it. Right. So I may have just heard your answer, but what was your gateway drug into the Tarantino-verse? Yeah, this was a fun question to answer to myself because I was like, what was it? Now, I don't know your age, but I'm 46. And so I I'm am actually... the exact same age as you. Oh, I was perfect. born at the okay. end of 1975, so, I'm, so I will turn 47 October's... at the end of this year. I'm at December. Okay, okay you're December, so you're right. So we're Gen yeah. Xers. We yeah, grew up in, the, in my opinion, and this is going to sound terrible. Yeah, we, I I, we grew up in the greatest time. We I know did. I'm old now, and I feel it. But I wouldn't <laughs> well, yeah, trade did, it. Man. No. I wouldn't trade it for the '80s and the '90s. I mean, again, the '70s were so, like you said, we were so young in the '70s. Like, right. I have some references, but for me, the '80s and the '90s were the formative years of me, and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Even though I'm, eventually I'm getting closer to less days ahead of me than behind me. Sure. But you know what? I, I would not trade. I'm very, very happy yeah. to have lived when I lived. We, I know we had the, I know people that are age have to agree. Just between the toys and the Saturday morning cartoons, oh, yes. the music videos and the hair metal and uh, action films. And it, it just, just it's everything unreal. seemed to happen yeah. in a span of 20 yeah. years from the 80s yeah. to 2000. Like it just did. And I don't mean yeah. to disparage on anyone. Of course, yeah. Love the decade you grew up in. Hopefully you do. But I'm telling you, if you could go back and live, in the 80s, like even but, Stranger yeah, I, Things doesn't give you enough of what we really went yeah. through. Like it kind of gives a little bit, a minus that we were chasing ghosts, but you know what I mean? Right. Like, well, good. Well, you're probably like some of my journey here. So I was actually a huge Young Guns fan. 
I don't know. Did you see those films or enjoy those Love films? Them. Uh, okay. The first Young Guns, the surprise. Well, this is so many years. So we're not going to spoil anything. But I remember watching it as a kid, and I remember when they shot Charlie Sheen and he died. I thought, right. that's never happened in a movie I've watched before. They don't kill off the star. Right. You know, because he was the big name, not Emilio. Yeah. Charlie was right. the big star. Yeah. Young Guns. I love Young Guns so much. Young Guns 1 and 2. I love those movies so much. So I was a teenager when they came out. And so Young Guns 2 was released. I saw that in the theaters and loved that one just as much. And Christian Slater had a, a role in that film. And that actually turned me on to Christian Slater films. We're getting somewhere here with this. So I became a Christian Slater fan because of his association with the Young Gun films, which I loved. I was a Young Guns fanboy. Because I love Westerns in general. I love Westerns, which actually ties into why I love QT in later years. So I, I'm a huge Westerns fan. And so then I saw True Romance in the theaters. And I saw True True Romance in the theaters because of Christian Slater. So when I went to see this film, I had no idea who Quentin Tarantino was. Uh, now, Reservoir Dogs was out, yes, at this time. Maybe I knew the name. Maybe I understood it. Because I was a bit of a movie geek. I, I used to subscribe to Premier Magazine and Entertainment Weekly. And so there might have been a small part of me that understood that the writing was unique and different in this film, but I was probably more of a Tony Scott fan than a Quentin Tarantino fan at this time, if that makes sense. But I definitely went to see True Romance because of Christian Slater. So that was my first introduction to the QT universe. Still hadn't seen Reservoir Dogs at this time. And then I saw, and I mentioned this on Craig's show, but I saw Pulp Fiction because of Uma Thurman. There were worse people to go see the movie for, I tell you that. (laughs) And, And again, I didn't, I, if you were to ask Ryan, the ticket holder in 1994, standing in line, who's Quentin Tarantino? I'd be like, I, I, I think he wrote and directed this film. I, I don't know. Would I have been able to answer that? I, I, I don't know. I'd have to dig into my memory banks. I don't remember. I just know that I saw it because I'm totally, I still think she's gorgeous. But back then, I was just absolutely in love with her. I had a celebrity crush on her. I used to watch all of her movies, even her terrible straight-to-video type movies back in the day. I was just, you know, there's no internet back then. I'm not saying I did anything inappropriate to her totally, I just totally fanboyed over her. I thought she was gorgeous on screen, so I watched everything she was on. I'd rent everything on VHS that she was in. And so I saw this movie, Pulp Fiction, because she was this cute girl on the front cover holding this book or whatever it was and Paul, I thought it was like is this a comic book movie is this about comic books or is this I had no idea so can you imagine going into Pulp Fiction with no idea what it's about it blows you the fuck away though yeah. once you sit there like yeah it's one of those movies that surprised the shit out of you if you have no yes. idea what you're getting into no idea. I had zero. This again before the internet um, I mean I guess I might have heard some scuttlebutt but I saw it early because I went to it because of Yuma, not because people were talking about this film. Not I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about it's out of sequence, about the violence, about, you know. And I said, oh, Bruce Wilson, that's cool. I kind of like Bruce. But I just, I, I peripherally like Bruce. Like, if he's in a movie, I'll watch it. I don't really care. But I don't go watch Bruce Wilson's films because he's in them, you know. And, uh, yeah, so I, I left that theater, of course, thinking, oh, who is this guy? What is this? This is a whole new experience. So that was the introduction. But I will say, really quickly here, I still didn't become a Quentin Tarantino fanatic the way I am today until the Kill Bill films. That's yeah, when but... I was fully converted to this man. Yeah, I fully uh, took upon the name of uh, Clint Tarantino <laughs> and uh, became his disciple. I was like, "These are okay, I'm done. This guy is just now we now we're against and now we're cooking with grease." And it is a good point uh, because we're leaving the 90s today. This is the right. he did six films in the 90s. Three he directed, three he wrote. Uh, right. He was in starred in one of them. 
But it is the Kill Bill. Like he he sep- he finally separates himself, and from that moment on, he says, "All right, yeah, you know I can do crime, but watch what else I can do. I'm really good at all this other stuff." And he just he yes. just it just skyrockets from there. So, what is your favorite Tarantino movie, and why is it not Kill Bill? I'm scooching. <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's well. It's, now, despite what Craig says, uh, Kill Bill is one film. You yes, know, it I, is. I heard yes, you, it yeah. is. Uh, Tarantino says it is. And okay. we'll talk, I mean, if you listen next month, we'll have a whole discussion of why it is one film. But again, I'm also a person like, yes, it was released twice, so I get it. But he did that so he could keep the entire story. Yeah, it's well, it's volume one and two. It's not part one and two. It's, it's a, yeah, it's one film, one storyline, one beat. Uh, yeah, it's funny. When you asked me to do Jackie Brown today, I was a little bit nervous because it's probably the least known film that I know about Quentin Tarantino. Kill Bill, I could have talked all day <laughs> through, through. So I'm... I'll probably do more talking now until we get to the film. Like, oh boy. Uh, but that being said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Kill Bill nerd. So Kill Bill is by far my favorite film that he's ever done. However, if he, people don't agree that it's one film, then I'll tell them, fine, part two, I think, is better than part one. Well, the great thing about him is, you know, you get samurai kung fu in part right. one and more of a samurai slash western in part yes. two. That's my Western leanings. Is so, so I'm good. a big Western yeah. fan. I'm a big Western fan. So when it does that kind of, it feels like a old time Western Western revenge film. Uh, in part two, it's, uh, I just love the aesthetics of part two a little bit better. I like the aesthetics. But I, I, I agree love, with you. I know what yeah, you mean. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's just okay. they're just beautiful films. They're just very exciting to always sit and watch. Oh, absolutely. Now, in your opinion, what is Tarantino's most Underappreciated film. Well, if anyone doesn't say this is their answer, then they're just wrong. It's well, it's, it has to be Death Proof. I agree a lot. Death Proof, or the movie we're talking about today, is a lot of times right. But Death Proof is it does it gets shit on a lot, and I hate the fact that it gets shit on because is it as good as Pulp Fiction? No, but it's a goddamn really good movie. And the more you watch it, the better it gets. Like there is so much greatness in it, and I think a lot mm-hmm. of people miss the fact that he is intentionally, especially the first half of that movie, emulating B movie grindhouse films. And one of my guests uh, across the pond, they don't have Grindhouse. So sometimes that kind of goes over their head. So I can understand over in Europe and other places that didn't either have Grindhouses or didn't have like drive-in movie theaters and the dollar theaters kind of thing. Then, yes, this kind of movie would slip past you and it wouldn't make a lot of sense because it's not in your wheelhouse or your vernacular. But Death Proof is, uh, I mean, how good are not only the ladies. I mean, it's his most pro-female movie he's ever made. And then how good is Mr. Kurt? Rick and Russell well, in this film. He's the best. He's the best. And I'm so glad he's worked with uh, Quentin Tarantino again. And we'll, we'll talk about what Quentin does for actors. But I love that film. I, huge, hugely underrated. And that's what I mean by underrated. Because I think people often say it's either Jackie Brown or maybe Death Proof. But people might lean towards Jackie Brown. But underrated, I view it as what's the least talked about of his films and appreciated versus the quality. I think Jackie Brown is underrated. But I think Death Proof is a better film. So I think that the gap between a better film for me to watch and enjoy and versus the public talking about definitely death proof i will not disagree it's been my uh, hill i'm willing to die on yeah absolutely now who is your all-time favorite character in the massive tarantino verse yeah this one's tough boy I, you know I, I i didn't like this question at all um <laughs> because there's that's what quentin does he builds characters yeah. and every character is so unique and so different and adds something there's no side character that isn't something doing something whether it's you know brad pitt's stoner character on mm-hmm. the couch or uh or even just in jackie brown that that uh another drugged out character in ordell's uh apartment there you know the, the one that, yeah Sharonda, <laughs> oh she doesn't she doesn't know I'm here. Don't worry about it. She, she doesn't know you. Like he builds these 
character in these little storylines for every little character because it means something in every scene. Nobody is wasted. There's just nothing wasted in his films. So, however, of course, my all-time favorite character is Beatrix Kittle, of course. I just love Yuma Thurman and then Kill Bill. It just makes me, she's just, every scene she's in, she just, it's the, her role of a lifetime. She was born to play that role. Agreed. But for side characters, again, I'm going to Kill Bill. I love Michael Madsen's performance as Bud. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And he actually has one of my favorite quotes later for your next questions. But, um, oh, actually, no, sorry. If you were to ask me this question, sorry, I meant to say, yeah, it'll be I there, got yeah. a little, I got, I got a little confused with your question. I was sorry, your questions. No, worries. no, no. And I was like, oh, he's talking about what's my favorite quote from Jackie Brown. So yeah. I had one for Kill Bill. If I was on the Kill Bill episode, <laughs> anyways, but Michael Madsen as Bud is what an incredible performance that he plays this tragic, pathetic character. And he just, <laughs> I just, I just love it. And I will say when Bud gets killed by, uh, their highness character, uh, I'm, I was so pissed off. I was so pissed off. I did not like how I know. Quentin dead Michael Dirty in that scene. What a way to go. I, I hate that scene so much. It's, it's a bad the, scene, but it's a great scene because she is such an awful person. You know, she is the see you next Tuesday in the personification of a see you next Tuesday. She is a brutal lady. I will say one thing about uh, Daryl Hannah. Uh, as Ellie Driver, that's right. Yeah. So she played the California Mountain Snake. Yes. I will say this about Quentin. He has this ability, and we'll talk about when we get to Jackie Brown, to make actors that aren't quote-unquote great actors for whatever, or not great, they just seem to not be in the movies they should be in as far as A-list type mm-hmm. movies. Like, of course, what he did for John Travolta, Pulp Fiction is the greatest example of that. He took somebody whose career was struggling. Nobody was knocking on John's door at this time. Nobody. But Quentin has this weird ability to take these washed-up, maybe, yeah, actors no, and, and really give them a new life in his films because of his writing and directing which is like you know which is it is the person a good actor or is quentin a good director and writer and i think it's a bit of both of course you know you can't be i couldn't do a quentin movie like quentin can't even direct himself quentin's terrible in his own films so he's not a good yes. actor <laughs> but he's he's a lot of cameo in his own films we'll give him that right so i think daryl hannah hate to say it, she kind of falls into that role she's not a good actress she's the weakest part of the kill bill films uh, I mean, her, her character is That's what fair. it is. That is fair. But I don't think she's a good actress. And it's like when you can't come out of a Quentin Tarantino film not looking good as an actor, then it's you. That's what I'm getting at. Then yeah. it's on you. So I couldn't be like, <laughs> Quentin, Quentin can't act. We know he's not a good actor. And I think he would tell you he's not a good actor. Yes. Daryl Hannah, I'm sorry, Daryl. If you're listening, you're just not a good actress. Because if you can't come out of the Kill Bill films looking like maybe she's just outgunned by all these other performances. But even like Vivia Fox is a good actress in the Quentin Tarantino. What does that tell you? She's She's fantastic in that role. Yeah, so fantastic. I, yeah, yeah. So Green, that's yeah. my hot take, Daryl Hannah. I like it. Uh, hey, I like yeah. it. You know what? Sometimes you know. Hey, the truth is the truth. Yeah. If David Carradine, if he can have a resurgence, well, I mean, at least right. be brought to the forefront of life. You know, again, and play yeah. Bill. He killed it. Here's some fucking facts, Jack. How many times is the word fuck said in Jackie Brown? Uh I only know about the N-word because I saw that in the Yes, that's a lot. Yeah. Well well, it's funny, it is a lot. I mean, you know, that's a very sensitive subject, of course. And maybe we should talk about it because this was it's one in, of the controversies. It, we'll bring it up. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Uh, so I know that was thing 38 was for that. But I think the, uh, for the N-word. But I think for the F-word, I should say, uh, is, uh, boy, I'm going to guess. Okay, I'm going to guess 62 times. 138. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So now when they all combine right, it, right. they combine the motherfuckers, the whole thing. So they give them but sure, yeah, sure. 138. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay, boy. Oh, 269 boy. for Pulp Fiction. So, I mean, this is kind okay. of tame <laughs> compared it's to... It's tame. It's, yeah, yeah, sure. Brother. One a minute. One a minute almost. Okay. All right, that. Body count. This should be an easy one, but how many people are killed in this film? Three. It's actually four. Okay. One, two, three. Um, Ordell. Ordell. Yep. Melanie. Melanie. Lewis. And someone has to get Lewis. in a trunk and doesn't like to get in a trunk. Oh, of course. Yeah. This happened so fast at the beginning. Beaumont. Yeah, you forget about yeah. Beaumont because all the end, the end, like the three yeah. died at the end, pretty, it's kind of almost a rabbit. Yes. But, you know, you forget about Beaumont. Of course. Of course. Thank you. Yeah. Ooh, some bare feet sightings. Now, as you are a Tarantino fan, you know that he has a bit of a f- affection for feet, bare feet. Yes. Yeah, now, yes. I have a section called bare feet sightings. How many times there are bare feet? Now, when I mean that is how many times does a character come into a scene and is barefoot? Now, how many times we see their feet in that scene? Because oh, in the boy. opening, because one of the opening scenes with the person. But how many bare feet sightings are in this film? Oh. So how many scenes do we have bare feet? And actually, it feels more because of the oh, one of the opening scenes, but it's not as right. much as you would think. I, I don't know. I don't. I know, of course, Bridget Fonda. It's only Bridget off. Fonda. So okay, he, I was going to say because yep. I don't remember anyone else. Only Bridget Fonda has bare feet in this. Yes. So you're asking how many? How different many times? Scenes? How many different scenes does she come in with bare feet? Yep. Twelve. Three actually. Three scenes. So in oh. the opening scene, you'll see him like a bunch of times, but oh, she's only in up. three okay. scenes with oh, bare I see feet. Yes. Oh, I see. Okay, like almost like segments of. Okay. Yes. 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 Sorry. Okay. Yeah. No, that's fine. Well, she's that's uh, she she kind of throws the monkey wrench in the thing because most of the time it's different people, but she's the only barefoot person, and we'll talk about it in a little bit how many times yeah. we see her in the in the opening. Next up, the motherfucking Tarantino verse. So we have three connections in this film, and in fact, two happen in one scene. Number one. The first is when Jackie meets Sharonda at the mall for the exchange trial run. Sharonda has a cup with the name The Akuna Boys on it. The same cup. Arlene is sipping from in Death Proof. There's also an Akuna Boys commercial during the intermission of Grindhouse. Mm. And lastly, the Akuna Boys is the name of the gang that Esteban Viejo runs in Kill Bill. Right. So Akuna Boys makes it into this film and has gone through three other films outside of it. That's crazy. Number two. In that same scene, Jackie happens to be drinking from a teriyaki donut cup. Teriyaki Donuts is the shop Marcellus Wallace has bought donuts from just before he gets run over by Butch (laughs) in Pulp Fiction. Number three. Speaking of running Marcellus over, our last connection is the Honda that Jackie drives in this movie is the same Honda in the aforementioned scene where Butch runs over Marcellus in Pulp Fiction. So there you have it. Those are our three connections. There has to be some site out there, a website, where they've connected almost like a timeline of all these products. Okay. Uh, Quentin Tarantino Archives. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up. That is actually where I get the name of this podcast on the Pulp Fiction DVD special edition. The one of the very first. Uh, chat rooms was called the Church of Tarantino. Oh, uh, I believe it became a website and then has since been changed its names to the Quentin Tarantino Archive, so they no longer go with it. So I thought as an homage to pay respects to the very first people to kind of oh, talk oh. about Tarantino, I would name my podcast after the very first chat room that had people talking about Tarantino. So there you go. There's, there you there's, go. there's the origin. And now the gospel according to the almighty Tarantino. Chapter 6. Jackie Brown. It's kind of an homage to black exploitation, but not really. Like mm, it has a yeah. black exploitation heroine, like the black exploitation female of all right. time, in Miss Pam Greer. Right. As a Tarantino fan, the the beauty of it is we hey, the very first movie he's talking about Pam Greer in a scene in a car with four white guys trying to talk about this this TV show on the way to a bankrupt. We hear Pam Greer's name mentioned in '92. Five right. years later, there's fucking Pam Greer, and yeah. we get her in this beautifully shot. 
LAX scene, which, you know, in my mind, I was like, they would never be able to pull half the stuff off anymore after 9-11. Like, it's amazing the right, stuff that they were yeah. able to do. But we watch her in the amazing opening soundtrack of Across 110th Street, and there she is on a fucking conveyor belt looking cool as shit for right. a flight attendant who's a down on her luck. Like, in the worst plane you could ever fly. But, yeah, she looks so fucking cool, and it's such a great moment. And then you forget she doesn't come back on screen for 30 minutes. Like, we see her. We're like, this is Jackie Brown. And then Jackie Brown fucks off for 30 minutes. And we never, we don't, you know, we almost forget about her for part of the film because of all the stuff that happens. When you first saw and rewatching it, because, you know, when you get to see it with fresh eyes again. Right. What was your your impression of that opening sequence? Because it's different than most of his opening sequences. It is. Here's the thing about Jackie Brown in general, and this plays into your question. The, how much we watch characters just walking or moving from one a to b no dialogue yeah um and i'm like what are we to take from this because there's a lot of point a to point b travel by foot that nothing happens other than the travel and i i maybe i have to take more time to think about what that means i have some theories but what do you think about that what do you think about the slow travel in this film there's a lot of slow travel i think some of it is him just saying look i can do more than just Action sequences. I can do more than just, you know, violent gags. The opening of Hey Flight, like I said, it's a long shot of that stagecoach coming. Right. We spent five yeah. minutes or so on that stagecoach coming. And yet, I think some of it is, is maybe he uses his cachet of you're used to some of his other movies, what he does. You're on the edge of your seat waiting to see if there is going to be something happening or if there's someone in the background, like in Pulp Fiction, I'm sure you heard. But when Honey Bunny and uh, Pumpkin are talking... You, first, you know, you don't know who Tron Travolta is or what his character is right. going to look like, but as you watch the movie more, you see him walk past that, walk behind right, them. Right. You know what I mean? There, there's. I don't think he ever just wastes a shot. I think sometimes he's willing to let the film just breathe and watch people walk because a lot of times, you know, we do the quick cuts. You know, the kind of the guy Ritchie right. quick cuts, which I do love in, in movies. If they work. Sometimes it's like, oh, I did this, and now we're here, and then we're that. You know, it's very, very fast. We got to get people. And I think sometimes he likes to just take his time and and let the beauty of the film be the beauty of the shot. You know, I, I think sometimes he's just like. Let's take a moment to enjoy the scenery and watch this person, you know, yeah, and sure. I mean, how many black females or let alone black actors get the kind of introduction and beginning that she gets in modern movies, especially up into that point, especially, you know oh, what I mean? It's, like, well, it's still rare it's, uh, for, for mainstream film. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very rare. In fact, they have a type of film called black exploitation because it's it's almost like this is you know uh, black actors have their own film like what do you call it the genre yeah, like, yeah which, is, which is strange to say because yeah. they're actors you know what i mean like, they're actors they're people they should it still have feels like segregation own... doesn't it? like it's like yeah. you can only drink well you can only be in this movie like it feels like the whites blacks drinking fountain thing even though i know it's not what it is but you're no, right but yeah yeah they have their own sort of genre subgenre uh what i love about qt is just like you're saying how they're talking about Pam Greer, the actress in a film that he writes, and then he gets the same actress to play a role in the film. And obviously, this is what I love about Quentin Tarantino is he takes, he has a love for these, uh, maybe we call them B roll films or B movies or straight to video, what we say today. Uh, he has a love for these films, sees the quality in them. And how should I say this without insulting uh, Pam Greer's films or people like Pam Greer's films, where they're not great films per se, but he sees something in them and he then Quentin Tarantino's them into yes. great films. So like he's, I don't know, like he's like, okay, we got something here with a, uh, a, a bad Western or a bad uh, black exploitation film or a bad crime drama. 
I'm a film, whatever. Like, and he shows these films in his films. He'll show like yes. a character watching a TV show or film that is a it's garbagey. It's not a very good film or, or or TV show, but it shows you that Quentin likes that stuff. But he recognizes they're not very good quality, and then he then makes those films what they could. Like, does that make sense? Am I yes, making I any think sense? like okay. when he shows some of the white lightning stuff in this, right. I think it's the set pieces of the car chases that get him excited, and sometimes maybe the badassery of who the actor is supposed to be. Where, you know, he's delivering cool lines and this and that, but maybe the rest of the movie's garbage and there's no one else in the film who can even do anything. But he sees those elements and goes, ooh, I like that about that. And then, like you said, he takes them. He's like a chef. He takes, he's not making the, this isn't his own recipe. But his ingredients is going to make this the greatest fucking thing you've ever had. So, like like you yeah. said with um, Kill Bill, he's not the first. He even gives no. the Shaw Brothers the credit they deserve. But his is better than Shaw Brothers. But yeah. I think it's those things, like you love things. Like when we're kids, you love certain things. And if you look at him as an adult, you go, it wasn't as good as I thought it was. But as a kid, it was. Right, and so I think yeah. he takes that like, ooh, I loved it at this age. And now I'm going to make it what it always deserved to be. You know, I now have the financing and the acting to do it. And so now I'm going to take these B-movies movie genres and i'm gonna make them a-list fucking genres so you watch pam greer and you can't help but think oh boy she's a now we're now we're her she's 47 in this film you probably knew that but yes. she's actually she her character is 44 but she's pam greer herself is 40 yeah it's crazy <laughs> <Makes> I know. <laughs> so of course when we saw this film 25 years ago i mean she was a an older lady and i i don't think i was quote-unquote attracted to her but I, I got the sense of the sexuality come from now that i'm her age watching this film like her character's age in this film it's seen pam Greer now and i'm like oh boy like i get yeah the totally get the yeah. attraction that uh, robert forster's character max has for her and you you, you get that she's she draws men in yes. and she exudes this uh calm sexy strong uh, smart it's it's amazing and pam Greer is amazing in this film which then leads me to say why is it that quentin has this ability to give these non-a-list actresses the ability to to act the way they do is it just his writing and directing or what is it that he sets to them between takes that gets them to be on board with i'm going to give a performance that i've never given before how does he do that what is it that he says or does? I wonder if it's he has not just a love for them, but he has a respect for them. And, and you know, maybe like I've said about Michael Madsen, Michael Madsen is great in his films and other films. It's like, hey, Michael, can you be Mr. Blonde in this film mm. for us? He's not in a lot of great films sometimes. And he's always stuck as like a, another gangster. But it's always like they're looking for him to be Mr. Blonde again, where I think Quentin is like, look, I, you've already played Mr. Blonde. You already played Foxy Brown. How about I allow you to act the way you can probably act as opposed to just, all right, now we need you to say this cool line and be, always look bad and, you know, book them, shouldn't right. you? Know, like they're saying, hey, let's go. Like, I think he gives them the ability to actually act as opposed to be a character. You know, like, it's like, hey, bring all of the weight of your life, of being a black woman in your 40s, having a shit job. Bring that to the screen. I hired you because I know that you have this in you. Do it. And I think he trusts them. And I think because of that trust, like with Travolta, he trusts them to be the actors he knows they can be where other people just want them to be the star that they are. I think that may be the difference between why he gets such amazing performances out of people as opposed to, oh, hey, we've got so-and-so in our movie, like Bruce Willis down the end of his career, and not Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson is the guy from Taken, but now he's blind, or this time he's on a truck, or this time he's in a train, you know? It's that, we just rehash, where he gives them that breath 
to be like, it's time for you to act and I know you can do it. And I think they feel comfortable and they feel like trusted that he's going to directing them in the right way. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I, did, I watched that. I'm like, boy, and I feel bad that Pam, I mean, she's always had a job. She's always been working and she's always made money and uh, been in films, but this is her, this is her kill bill. Just like Uma's had her big film. Yeah. I think everyone, every one of these actors in all of his films, I feel like they can almost look to their Quentin Tarantino filmography as the highlight of their career. And he's able to do yeah. that. So you talk about Nick Cage. Yeah. Nick Cage needs a Quentin help i think this new movie coming out is going to help him but i think him and tarantino he would be on a trajectory again like he had in the 90s that might, that might be a question you should ask in your questions is which actor should quentin save yes yes that you know what from now i'll i will give this you the credit for oh that. you, you will think, now no, get the credit, credit. it's fine no, that's what i would have who sh- whose career should quentin save now we leave the amazing opening and we get one of the great moments it's one of the giddy moments it's chicks with guns First of yeah, all, yeah. is there anything more American than hot women in bikinis shooting guns? It's weird how it still nails 25 years later, still feels like this is still America. Through and through, hot women, scantily clad, firing off weapons for reasons we don't understand. Yeah, yeah. It's very it's very 90s, very American. This is you know kind of early internet days. And so the idea of seeing these uh, scanty clad females in bikinis blowing off weapons, is, <laughs> it's, it is it is kind of it is kind of fun. It's it's that combination of uh, sex and violence, right? So, But how fun is it that someone went out there and made a video cassette? Right. <laughs> I have always wanted to wonder, does Ordell have this because this is part of the kit they give you when you become a gun runner when you're like, here, here you go, right. here's your introduction, here's your video, here's what you're going to use to sell your weapons. Or did just somebody out there was like, you know what, I'm just going to make a video that goes direct to DVD, you can rent in the mom and pop video stores, and here it is, it's chicks with guns. You can. I think it's the second. I think it's the idea of it is if you are a gun lover, you get to watch hot chicks take gotcha. care of weapons. So this yeah, is guns and ammo idea. meets tits and asses kind of thing. So yeah, here's exactly. your guns and ammo TNA version. Well, it's like those uh, tattoo magazines. Yes, you yes. Know, you, yes. They have the hot girls. Like I don't, you don't need the hot girl to display the tattoos. But hey, you've got a you like tattoos and you like hot girls. You just combine the sex two. That's sells. What you're, I, I, mean, I don't think exactly. it just sells in America. I think sex sells across the sure. globe. So, sure. Yeah. Sure. One of my favorite moments. And I don't know what it'll be for yours at the end, but the AK-47 speech. I absolutely love the AK-47 speech. Uh, It's probably up there as one, you know, again, you have to be a Tarantino fan because, like we said, Jackie Brown sometimes slipped by his people's radar because it does fall between Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill. It's, you know, it's bookended by two of his best movies he's ever made. So sometimes Jackie Brown slides. But. Is there a better moment or speech or a monologue where better than the AK-47? I know the gold watch is good, but just how quick and brief and exciting Samuel L. Jackson, he sells an AK-47. If anyone can sell an AK-47, Samuel L. Jackson just absolutely sells the AK-47. It's fantastic. Enough. I'm not a gun guy. Like I don't know weapons per se it's not a hobby that i have it's i I don't care if people are it doesn't bother me either i'm not anti-gun i I just don't own guns and even though i'm in 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 the navy and i deal with you know i i have weapons training i did not uh, know that you were in the canadian navy yeah i'm the canadian navy full time almost 19 years this this august wow i was in the uh, american army from 2000 2005 i spent some time in iraq but uh, i know thank you for your service a fellow thank you for yours you're you're definitely uh, seeing a lot more than i uh, see as far as that kind of boots on the ground i'm navy is a different element of course but i just uh yeah so i i don't 
hate weapons. I'm not. I'm not crazy about them. I, I'd rather I, no, be I, out of I understand. I understand okay, what you mean. Yeah, yeah you got to have of, a healthy respect for these things. Yes, I've, if you listen to my, a lot of times, people are very. Well, Got to have guns. Well, you need yeah. to know how to use them too. But I, yeah, I will yeah. tell you something right now for those American listeners that I have. They have just learned that the Canada has a navy. Like I guarantee you, majority <laughs> of the people listening yeah, had so no idea Canada navy. had a navy. So, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, we've just learned that Canada, in fact, yes. does have a navy. Well, we have Northern Interest Security, right? You no, know, I know you do. I'm just saying, like you know, we're Americans. Are like there's only Americans in America's army. No, navy. no. Well, you guys have huge, uh, huge military, of course. Yeah, we're we a small a country with the. You do spend a lot of money. We're small potatoes, absolutely, on the world stage. But we have to have a voice or else we don't get to participate in the discussion. That's kind well, of you're also yeah. you're closer to Russia than we are. I mean, I yeah, mean, yeah, we have Alaska, me. but I'm like, you guys have got quite a bit of, you know, yeah. it's not too far. So No, it's not. No. So uh, the, where was I going with this? Anyways, I apologize. I, uh, yes, I apologize. No, I didn't mean no, to jump fine. you. We were talking no, about the uh, AK-47. Oh, the oh yeah. yeah. So I was just going to say that, yes, yeah, so Samuel L. Jackson's delivery of that line about the AK-47, about what it's capable of doing. Me being a non-gun lover and owner, I think I might have been able to have been sold on that weapon. You know, it was a great, it was a great sales pitch. That's all. So I just wanted to say, yeah, it was a great sales pitch. <laughs> and in that same scene, as we were just talking about earlier with the bare feet sightings, we get introduced through some feet shots of Bridget Fonda, like Quentin Tarantino really starting from From Dust Till Dawn when he sucks on Selma Hayek's foot in a scene that he wrote. So we had that discussion. He uh, right. he really likes Bridget Fonda's feet. And I give her credit. I mean, you know, I give these ladies credit. He, and I give him credit. He never shows them in a, in a nasty way. You know what I mean? Like, he, he knows how to photograph them. So you right. see them. You're used to them in his films. Maybe it's me. I never feel, I don't feel a fetish towards them. But I also don't feel turned off or, like, being like, ugh. Feet. You know what I mean? I don't have a reaction. Some people just don't like feet, and that's perfectly fine. But whenever I see them, I always feel like it is definitely, he doesn't just use them for a fetish. But he uses them as a character attribute. I feel like he's mm-hmm. letting us know by seeing feet without doing a tits and ass kind of thing. You know, obviously she's in a right. bikini most of the time, but we don't well, we'll center t- on uh, her breasts. Yeah, but you know what I mean? Like, uh, we don't center well, on I her breast. But... Oh, you know, being like <laughs> most movies, they're right, front yeah. and center. You know what I mean? Like that's the shot we're going to get. Mm-hmm. And even when Selma High comes out from Dust Till Dawn, Robert Rodriguez, right. she, I mean, she's just as scantily clad and looks just as gorgeous. But we don't linger on a shot of her chest, but we do linger on the shots right. of her feet. So while it's a fetish, he there's a again, and I would love to hear a, a female's perspective on this. I really would love to. Any of my female listeners, please reach out on my socials. Please let me know how you feel about these shots. Is he oversexualizing women's feet, or is it more of a I don't know less perverse way? I don't know the proper term I'm looking for yeah. to say like I don't feel like he's being overly sexual with the feet, but I know that by seeing their feet that she's definitely like either a temptress or I'm supposed to feel that she's definitely a sex pot in the film without. Hovering on breast and ass the entire length, like a 1980s film would do. Well, it's it's interesting. Uh, I think if you didn't know about Quentin's personal love of feet, and we don't even have to say fetish because it makes it sound I was say inappropriate. Yeah, it does. It, it, it makes it does sound like he's like a pedophile on a list. Yeah, right. And their feet. I mean, what? So it's weird. He likes feet, Agreed. and a lot yeah. of people like feet. It's, yes. I don't. I don't. I don't get it. But that's what makes a fetish a fetish. It's like people are turned on by what they're turned on, and feet is you know it's legal. It's consensual. <laughs> the, 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 the film, the filming of the feet are signed off by the actresses. I don't. I, I think they probably get a kick out of. It. Look, they're probably flattered to some degree. Like, you want to show my feet, and I like, go. Oh. 
okay. Like, I don't think any of these, I think an actress might would rather show their feet than take off their top. I think there's, we've seen more, I can't believe this. We've seen more dick than we've seen. We've never, there are no breasts right. in the Tarantino. Well, from Dust to Dawn has him in the, the scene, but the, I mean, I guess technically that's his, but he didn't direct it. In a film directed yeah. by Tarantino, there have not been breast shot that I can remember, recall. No, I would not have complained had Bridge of Fonda's bikini fallen off. I would not have no. complained. No, I would. I was I just say and, and I the sex scene. I was her. hoping maybe, but oh, are we yeah, talking about yeah. her most recent uh, coming back to life? Okay, well, we'll get to that. For, well, for, yeah, yeah. So I think Bridget Fonda is absolutely. I mean, nineteen ninety seven Bridget Fonda, stunning, just absolutely gorgeous. She, she, yes. Her smile, her nose. I like the way her nose is going to bends up a little bit. I did. She is. She's a stunning actress. A stunning personality and and a good actress. Let me be clear, so I don't get any hate. No, mail. she like, was yes, great in this film. She was great in this. Yeah, film. She's great in this film, and she's. I've seen a lot of her films. I, she's kind of like that Uma Camp for me. Yeah, uh, when I was Point of yeah, No Return that, was a, was a great yeah. movie. She, she, you know, that was a remake, but it's a great movie. And it's unfortunate what's happened to her, both on a personal level and um, I hate to say physical appearance level because we're not measured by how we look. That's not what no, I'm getting I agree. At, but I agree. It, it's just unfortunate that. Again, if you look at Uma today, I, you saw her at the Oscars. I don't know if you saw her with yeah. uh, John Travolta. Yeah, she's great, you know. Yeah. And she's fifty. I don't know. She's fifty. Yeah, she, I mean, she's had two. she's had some work, and I, I always feel she's had I, a little bit of work. Sure, I but feel bad for it, these these ladies. They they go through some pressure, yeah, know, you know, and it's and it's I unfortunate, know. you know. I mean, but you look at people like Helen Mirren or Meryl Streep. They age gracefully, you yes. know, which I really appreciate. You know, it's okay to get your crow's feet, and I understand. But I just want to let these women know I don't put this on you. If you age naturally, that's fine. Uh, I, I mean, unfortunately, I think fine. Hollywood I, I, is the people who are. I know. You it's know? horrible. So poor Bridget Fonda. Yeah, that. Uh, it's too bad. I guess some photographer got a picture of her, and she's. You wouldn't recognize her if she. No, if, if you I, when I first saw mall, it, I thought someone was like, "That's." I was like, "That's not Bridget that's Fonda." Not like I didn't. Like her face didn't even look the same. No, you know, what I mean, I, obviously she's put on some weight, but it's like, like facially, I was like, "Is that?" And then I was like, "Oh my god, I guess right. it is." You know. And it I didn't is, know she was confirmed <laughs> to be her. How was this? She re- reappears 25 years later, and that's the first time I realized she was married to Danny Elfman. I had no idea she was married yeah. to Danny Elfman. And that guy's a bit of a goof. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. he's only go boy though. So yeah, he's yeah, Jack Skellington. So, anyways, I, I, it's so part of me is watching this, and I almost felt I don't know what the word is not terrible, but I was like, I'm just uh, f- falling in love with this character and this actress on screen again, watching this film from 25 years ago. But also just recently, this news came out of it. And I thought, oh, boy. It was kind of hard to watch her knowing that where she ends up 25 years later. And it's terrible to say that. I was like, oh, well. Because, uh, you know, Samuel Jackson looks good. You know, uh, you know, Robert De Niro just looks like an older guy. Like, everyone just aged. But for some reason, the, the, the transformation from this movie to now is... You it's shocking because yeah. I think what it is is, and again, I hope none of the female listeners. I, I I'm, I'm the same camp with you. I think you should all be naturally beauty. I, I hate the the stuff that is put on women. I have a daughter right. myself. I hate the stuff right. you have to go through. I hate the constant need to be on all the time. I. I can't imagine what that's like, and I, I hate the fact that there's industries out there that continually push it, and even people like the Kardashians shoving it down yeah. your throat. I can't stand that shit, but. Yeah. It is what it is. I have I don't have the powers to change that right at the moment. But no. I think part of it is is twenty five years have gone. So sometimes when you see a person age or like you said change, you watch it over time. Right, it's gradual. You know, yeah. so she so like the last our last burned in memory is of her as this sex pot in wearing you know Daisy Dukes and a bikini top and her feet out all the time. And then all of a sudden she's like, I mean now she's in her fifties I think by now or you know. I think she's fifty eight. Yeah, so she looks like a person who would be in their fifties, you know. But like it went from and I. 
Don't mean this in a mean way. It went from like all of a sudden you went from like, oh, there's this starlet to all of a sudden like just a regular mom in like a Walmart. Well, it, it's it's a little bit. I, the, I think it's even worse than that. I hate to say that. it. It just it's unfortunate. It, but you know, like it was like it was a quick. It was a yeah. big transformation. That but I think the 25 years of not seeing her. I, I think it would be the same. Like I'm trying to think of another actor. I there's got to be other people like kind of fall off the Look face at Marlon here. Marlon Brando. There you go. Marlon yes, Brando. Yes. 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 Oh yeah. Oh god. Oh god. Yes. There you go. So we'll, yes. we'll put we'll put the men Oof. under the bus. Marlon Brando was one of the most handsome men in the world. Holy he was gorgeous sh- man. And then he just destroyed himself. Like, come on, and man. not even like, I mean, all, he all got these worse wasted than, years. He got worse than he looked. I mean, he looked terrible in The Godfather. But after The Godfather, like the Island of Doctor Moreau or the Michael Jackson video, yeah, 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 you were yeah, just yeah. like, who is this man? Like, he just yeah fell it's apart. Too bad. Fell apart. The Orson yeah. Welles is another one. So we'll we'll use men for example. So it's too bad that these handsome, talented people. And I hate to say, when you're a movie star, your obviously your job is to look. So, part, some some of, of it your, is your looks. It, unfortunately, part, that is part, part of it. Well, we're watching you on screen. It's an aesthetic. Like it's your money maker, right? If you're a music, let's, let's say you're a musician, right? Yeah. And your job is to play guitar, and then all of a sudden you suck at guitar. I'm allowed to say, hey, you used to be good at guitar. Twenty five. Why do you suck now? Well, so like, I'm enjoying your guitar playing. So the same for actors or actresses. Like aesthetically, I am watching you on screen. You have a look, and you have a something that you're bringing to the screen. You take that aesthetic away. I'm sorry, but that's why I'm watching you. You're you're the visual experience, and you've destroyed the product. I don't know how else to say it. Like that's no, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It's so it's it's more of a if you if that's the way you your life goes, that's perfectly fine. However, and it's shocking because off, because you yeah. you you portrayed yourself to us as this, and all of a sudden it's different. You know, it, I I get what you mean. I you do should understand. start off as Chris Farley. Start off as Chris Farley. Start <laughs> off as John Candy, and then you're good to go. The rest. Yeah. <laughs> start off as a John Candy, and then there's no issues. Okay. Although you might die. Right. <laughs> Honestly, when I was watching her, I, I just what is that about Quentin that he's able to do that? Where you fall in love with the females to say so let's say uh, Lewis when he's falling in love or in lust with yeah Melanie. I'm doing it too as a watcher and same with uh, uh, Max Cherry with with uh, Jackie Brown. You're like I'm doing it too. I get it. I get the appeal. You know what? Here I'm gonna. Th- I feel like uh, some of the women might be like these motherfuckers right now, but I'm gonna spin it for you right here. I'll bring us them back in. I think okay. what it is is our normal ways of female characters where they were hot and sexy, but didn't have a lot to say, or they had to be the sultry one, like a bad girl kind of thing. The I think James what Bond he, girl. Yeah, I think what he did is he let them be sexy, but he also allowed them. To be intelligent and be pe- actual people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. They weren't just a, an object of affection. And if any women can take anything away from it, well, yes, beauty will bring a man into your orbit, so to speak. What will really keep them there, especially if they're worth having around, is what you bring as a person, like your personality. And I think her personality, Jackie's personality, Uma's personality, all these women, especially all the women in Death Proof, their personality. Yeah. Makes them sexier. You know what I mean? Like, it, mm-hmm. it really Absolutely. does That's make them yeah. sexier. Yeah, the looks are great, but like, after all the, you know, the eventual what right. looks bring you together, once that's all said and done, what keeps a person together is what does that person bring to the table? Not just for female, but male. What does that person bring to the table outside of the look, you know? I mean, you could oh, yeah. have a, if you have a Porsche without an engine, you just got a good looking car that just sits in the driveway and goes nowhere. Right. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying men or women are a car, but if you have something that looks good but has nothing on the inside, 
It just right. looks nice to, to hang on a shelf. Well, let's go back to the video with the chicks with guns. Like, yeah, there were hot girls yes. holding guns, but I felt nothing towards those girls. Like, meaning, no, like, no, a, yes. like no, a, I know what you mean. aesthetically, yes. yeah, they were like, okay, they're girls in bikinis, whatever. But the Bridget Fonda character, Melanie, there's something about her that was just like, yeah, that's what I mean. The charisma, the way she was, the way she treated Lewis, and the way she answered the phone for Adele, all that kind of stuff. Like, uh, yeah, I was going to get just, into that. That yeah. is such yeah. a great moment between them, the little tete-a-tete. Like, yeah. <laughs> or, like, He's looking at her like, girl, don't make me break my foot off in your ass. And you're like, okay, okay, all right. So there's definitely been a moment here. but And she's like, now again, we don't know that there's been physical violence, but we can kind of tell that there may have been at one time or two, a few times where she may have pushed Odell's buttons a few too many times and he felt the need to have to hit her to get her back into uh, <laughs> back into character, so to speak. But she doesn't back down for nobody. When she yeah. gets up and goes over there and puts out, it's for you, and sits back down almost like, I answer the phone, motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. He's just like it's for you. He wants to be mad at her, but he's like, <laughs> just it's such a fucking like go for right, you. You just were a dick to me in front of this person that I'm kind of hitting on. So okay, I'm gonna give it back to you by I'm gonna get the phone for you because you're a fucking asshole. But it's for you. I just fucking yeah, love I love that. It. It's such a yeah. uh we've all especially when you're younger. That is such a like stick it to the man moment where you're like you know a parent or someone who's older than you has kind of called you out and you're kind of embarrassed. It's like all right, I'm gonna get the last fucking word in here. And you just kind of now put them on their back foot. I just it's such a great little moment. But it does tell us also, like you're saying, but Tarantino, like he is so able to give us such notes on character development without us having to have a whole bunch of conversation. Just little moments. He goes, okay, I'm going to show you what their relationship is just right. in a phone call. We already know. It's obviously a relationship of mutual benefits there, right? right? So obviously he's got his white girl, surfer girl, who is actually his kryptonite, which we'll get to when we get towards the end of the film. And she's like set up by him. So she doesn't have to work. She gets to, so they have mutual benefits. It's a good relationship. And obviously whenever things get out of hand, he may or may not have to be aggressive with her here and there. But in return, right. not that she should take it, but she is willing to live a condo on the beach in California, rent free or whatever free. So she takes what she, right. for whatever you want to say. Like, I'm not going to try to make any kind of big statement on abusive relationships, but however abusive this is or isn't, they're both getting something out of it. And that's between the two of them. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, we're not here to, this isn't a Dr. Phil moment, right, right. but no, you can no, tell no. that there's something well, going on. They're both kind of deplorable characters in all right, let's be honest. Agreed. I mean, or. Or Ordell, but speaking of Ordell, the played by Samuel Jackson, one of the most uh, boy Samuel Jackson, he when he does Quentin Phillips, he just plays deplorable characters. I, he must have braced, he must love doing it. Well, like, I mean, he is so good at it though. Like, think about it. Yeah. How many people play like villains, and they usually seem to be the same villain. He is able to play so many different types yeah. of villains. You know, is Jules a villain? I don't know, but he's not a good guy. Ordell, he's a bad guy. But I think he he means well at some points. You know what I mean? Like, I really do think he just... I think Ordell actually is one of the most evil. Agreed. But I also think yeah. he's willing to go to lengths for himself. But I think he's also like a self-starter. Like, he's pulling himself out of where he comes from. He's trying to be an entrepreneur, even though he's, you know, a gun runner. You know, like, even when he plays Steven in uh, Django Unchained, and he wanted to be the most hated character. He wanted black people to hate him more than any character in cinema. He wanted to be that guy. And right. all three of those guys are reprehensible, but they all are different. You know, like they're completely, I mean, even Marcus Warren, like they're all different characters when he's on screen. And yeah. it's, and you know, it's Samuel and you're going to get the same great reads and stuff. Yeah. But I, they really, I mean, you could put all four of them together and be like, it's almost like there's four brothers. <laughs> like he's got four different people in his life. And they, these are the four people from his family. Do you think Spike Lee's jealous of Quentin? You know, I'm glad you bring that up so we can kind of, because a couple of things that Samuel Jackson brings, brings to mind. 
Some good and some bad. Speaking of which, is in this movie, there are 38 uses of the, the right. N-word. And I had this conversation with Ian on Pulp Fiction because we okay. talked about the Jimmy Dimmick scene. If you right. put a black character into Jimmy's spot, that scene holds up better now than it did. Right, because right. it's a shocking laugh moment, especially you know for white audiences to hear this guy say what he's saying. You're almost like, are you out of your fucking? You know, like, yeah. are you seriously saying this? I am of the mind that whenever the N word is used, and again, it's prevalent, especially in America, with hip hop and rap music. So it's in the vernacular. It's been in the vernacular for a while, and obviously, it should stay in the vernacular of the population that has the right to say it. Black people have the I'm right to use yeah, to use that in words. So, I don't have the so right. <laughs> when when a person in his movie, if a black character is are talking and it feels right in the character, if the words that are coming out of their mouth feel right, right. again, I'm white, so this you know, that's, really, you're, you're no. okay with that word? I don't feel uncomfortable. Because I feel like I'm watching something that's real and true. Right. When I watch the the movie uh, about on uh, NWA, I, I, you know, there was a lot of that in there. It felt true right. because it felt like we were watching an actual story from, you know, and this is the vernacular that the people in this story and of this world actually use. So it doesn't feel out of place. So when Spike Lee is upset about it, and then mm-hmm. Samuel goes to bat for him, yeah, that's huge. But I worry yeah. because Samuel went to bat for him, and I felt Samuel was right. I felt that the way it was being used in this movie, and in other movies we'll get to, like Django and Chain and stuff, I feel it's true to the time frame and the time period and what's being said. If they, right. like um, we talked about it with Zed, when Zed says it, Zed's a racist. We know Zed's a right. racist. You know, right. there's little moments that you can tell that Zed's racist by the flag in the, in the store, the, their name, like like you know they're racist without coming out. So when Zed says it, it feels right. You're like, yeah, that, that's something this guy would fucking say. Yep. That's the kind of guy. In this film, when especially you know, a lot of it is between Jackie says it. I mean, I don't think there's a white character that says it. I don't believe there's a single no, white character that no. says it. So it's basically. I actually was kind of looking for that. I think it's all. It's, it's all. I, th- it's, I don't want to say black and white, but it's both mostly black characters speaking to each yeah. other using the word, which yeah. again is used a lot. It's not like it's not like this is something that we don't know about or is taboo. This is just the way uh, African Americans yeah. or black people in general like if that, they they have a, a report. With each other, they talk this way. That's that's how it works. I don't care. That's I, I wouldn't say the fucking word. Hell no. no <laughs> you know no. what I mean? I wouldn't play Jimmy Dimmick. Hell no. No, I, I think that's probably maybe the biggest. Not that's criticism, the biggest one. Is that one? I think that's the biggest one. It's still shocking to watch Quentin himself because he writes the dialogue. Yeah, he's saying the word. He wasn't. Sub- I will. I'm not defending him, folks. But he wasn't originally. If you listen to the episode, wasn't originally supposed to play that role. Like he, right. He eventually had to take it. It wasn't originally what he was going to play. He was actually going to play Lance, which is a original character. But again, I'm not saying that he gets a pass for that. I'm just saying right. or he didn't, like, when From Dust to Dawn, he wrote the scene to suck on some Hayek's toes, so you can totally say he wanted to suck on some feet. In this one, I don't think he was <laughs> trying to say the N-word, and I don't believe he says it again as another character. I don't believe he no, says it ever either. again. So He probably, if Quentin today would probably go back in time and not have done that scene or written that way. I think, Or just had it be a black yeah. man doing it. Yeah, if it's yeah. another black man doing it, we have no. It's a great scene, and then it's hilarious. I think it's a. I think it was a bad judgment call back then, 1994. I mean, not excusing the time, but this is still almost 30 years ago. It's just. Probably, I wonder if some of it he was just trying to be edgy too, saying you know because there sure. was something that hadn't been seen in a film before. That's for fucking sure, right? So, yeah. yeah. So I, but it's still Spike Lee because he's got Samuel. That's what I'm getting because he that's Samuel Jackson, one of the greatest black actors ever. 
uh, amazing actor, kind of in Quentin's pocket. And there's probably a part of me. So that's what I mean. So Spike Lee, I think, might be a little bit jealous of the of the adoration that Quentin gets from certain community uh, actors and uh, not just that, that the love that Quentin gets for his films compared to the Spike films. He writes, let's let's be completely honest, what, regardless of how you feel about him using the N-word, folks who are listening to this, he writes amazing female and amazing black yeah. characters. He, he, he makes them the stars by them. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, those characters, I don't right. mean like we're trying to be racial, but how many actors out there, or directors out there are writing for black actors to be the star that aren't black? Yeah. How many yeah. are how many non-female? Yeah, back to Pam, Pam Greer again, like in exactly. the nineties. What what white director was white exactly. writing for a, a black actress? Yeah, and uh, for to go to Samuel's point with you know obviously talking about Spike Lee. Yeah, Spike had him in a couple of his movies, but he wasn't the star. Tarantino made him the star. Like let's be honest, Tarantino is the reason Samuel L. Jackson is who he is. Pulp yes. Fiction launched him. Jackie Brown keeps pushing him forward. I mean, after Jackie Brown, he becomes fucking Mace Windu. Yeah. One of the coolest motherfucking guys in Star Wars. He's Mace fucking Windu. He has such cachet, he's able to tell George Lucas he wants a purple lightsaber, and it fucking yeah. happens. Uh, he, you they, know? Changed the, they changed the lore for Samuel Jackson. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So, yeah. Sp- I mean, all I'm saying, like, I love Spike Lee. I got nothing against Spike Lee. And no. I love yeah. and, and then they're in commercials together. So clearly they fucking have, I mean, he got right. him into the commercials with him. So they do those commercials at the at I would the, just suspect there's a, and it's not to belittle Spike Lee, but I, I wonder if some of that criticism comes from a place of trying to bring Quentin down a peg. I wonder. If I'm wrong, I I'm wrong. I get it. Um, you know, people who I've watched a couple of interviews when they talk about Django and Chain, and a lot of people feel that Django is the first black superhero for some people. Mm, yeah. So, and it's written by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. I get it. But how about this? Can't you see them then maybe as an ally? Maybe as someone who understands or at least sympathizes and empathizes with the struggle of right. uh, blacks in America throughout history and is trying to, as a white man, rectify that kind of thing. You know, like however, you know, however that wants to go for people, he is at least, it's not disingenuous. Everything he's doing, I feel, is, is genuine. I feel it's done yeah. from his heart. And I feel Quinn, like he really, really does write great characters. You know, no matter how many times the N-word is yeah. used, at the end of the day, a lot of the times those characters having the N-word said to him end up winning the fucking day. Yeah, I think it's a tricky, well, it's a tricky discussion, let alone tricky for Quentin to do what he does because he is white and he is writing for a black character and in language that you and I would never repeat. We can't no. even quote no, a lot no, of Quentin films. So okay, we can't even mm-hmm. quote them. I'm not even gonna quote them. I don't want my I don't want my voice no. to be somehow sampled. Hey look, Ryan said that uh, yeah, we, no, no. Yeah, I know. But what I'm getting at is I guess Quentin is he's coming from a good place. does he succeed or not? Depends who you ask. But I think his his intention is such that he is writing strong characters and he's writing for a, it's not his background. It's not his ethnic background, but I think he pulls it off, but this is coming from a white person. So if he doesn't, that's just my own naivety about the situation, but I feel like he's pulling it off. I feel like I he's, feel like he's got a lot of yeah. support, at least in the black community. Like a lot of people okay. like his movies, at least that's, 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 the, that's, that's the feeling I've, I've gotten from interviews yeah. and reviews and stuff like that. And look, if Samuel Jackson's continue to work for him and, and Jamie Foxx yeah, wants yeah. to, you know, like if he was a piece of shit, I don't think he would still be able to do what he's doing. No, you wouldn't get, you wouldn't get Jamie Foxx. No, you yeah. would not. No, you would not. And you wouldn't get some of these, you know, you wouldn't get the uh, people to, who enjoy his films. Yeah. All right. Good discussions. I, I mean, I hope I feel bad. I mean, do people just want to hear us talk about uh, no, Jackie Brown? I've, I've always tried plot. to just, these okay are movies that are this. old. I like to talk about this stuff and okay. I just bring up some things. I think this is a good because this is the film that really started the conversation sure. and where he, he talked yeah. about it. Speaking though of Ordell, <laughs> this is, yeah. how many Kangles 
uh, K- Kangles, the, the the hat. Does he? I mean, oh. did he bring this back into fashion? Like, I feel like he did at that time. Like, all of a sudden, this movie, he has a Kangle, a different color in every single one. So, I, okay. my question is, does, what do you think he has more of? Kangle hats or isotoner gloves? Because every time he's going to kill a person, no, he's got a new hats. pair of isotoner gloves and a new hat. Like, there was a lot of Kangles in this film. And the one thing that was a little weird for me after the film is like Tarantino for like a little bit started to wear them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. he just can't pull them off. You know, he no, just doesn't well, pull them off well. I couldn't pull it off. I'm not pretending I could. But, I mean, Pam Greer that's pulls funny. it off in one of the scenes really well. And then Samuel Jackson. I mean, like, I feel right. like if he didn't get a sponsorship, he should be like the Michael Jordan of Kangol hats. Like, he just should. Like, he should have like a never-ending life of them. Kangol. Yeah. Okay. K-A-N-G-O-L. Kangol. And oh, okay. Yeah, he wears it. I mean, again, he wore them. They seem to come into fashion towards the late nineties, and then they've just disappeared again. So I wonder if you That's know. Funny. I just wonder if he still has all of the ones he has or not. Oh, there's a shop here in uh, Victoria. I can go get them. At Roberta's. The shout out to Roberta's Hats here in Victoria. There you go. They uh, they sell Kangles. Okay, that's hilarious. I would never wear one. <laughs> But uh, I, I get the I can't pull them off either. No, so. I'm, yeah, I'm not cool enough to pull them off. Just but not. Quentin, I love Quentin. Bless his heart. Uh, his fashion sense is terrible. Yes, and but he, you know, though I also give him credit. He just goes for it. He doesn't care. No, he doesn't. You know, he care. just he's like fuck it. I, I'm Quentin Tarantino. I, I just don't care. Like at this point, and that's the way we should all live to yes, a degree. Just be I agree. You. Did you notice on the fridge the picture of Mr. Samuel Jackson naked in the tub? I, I didn't. I, it, I missed that. In the opening, there is a shot of Samuel, obviously supposed to be Ordell, in the tub. That is actually a picture from him on set in Goodfellas. Oh, yeah. wow. So, folks, go back. Okay. It's in the opening. It's in the opening moment, which also in that opening moment, we are introduced to all four characters who die in the film. The three people on screen being, obviously, Samuel L. Jackson's character, Mr. Ordell, right. Mr. Lewis, Melanie, and he gets a phone call from... Beaumont. Oh, wow. There you go. And is there a better moment or another, like you said, another great cameo or just side character as Beaumont Livingston played by the great, amazing Chris Tucker. And like you said, Chris Tucker's hilarious. He's in those Rush Hour films and he's just like, he's just, you know, the eccentric Chris Tucker that we know like he was in The Fifth Element. But in this movie, like you're saying, like there is something. I don't know if he's got like some kind of Jedi calming, if he's like a horse whisperer. I don't know what he is, but he's able to get actors who normally you're like, yeah. okay, Chris Tucker's going to be like, nah, you're going crazy. And yeah. he doesn't, and he's so subtle, but he's still very funny without, you know, having to right. go too extreme for the last. And it's such a great moment. Between the two of them, you know, about, I, I hate to be that guy who asked for a favor, <laughs> then, yeah. you know, and then the whole, the setup of him just trying to get in the trunk. And then just the way Tucker, I watch it every time and I absolutely love it. The way he's able, because there's a cameraman in that trunk when we're looking right. up at him. Yeah. And the way he's yeah. looking at the trunk and he's just kind of like does little things like, how, how long have I been in this trunk? You know, like he's just kind of like looking at the yeah. trunk and like in his mind, he has gone someplace that that's the dirtiest fucking trunk ever. And he does yeah. a great acting job of that scene. Well, it's amazing because the moment Ordell comes to pick him up at the hotel, say, hey, I've got an errand to run kind of thing. Come with me. You know, this character's dead. Yes. And we, so it's not a surprise when it happens, but that's what's amazing about this whole sequence between the discussion, the way Samuel L. Jackson's character Odell is talking to Chris Tucker's character, the the way they we know Chris Tucker's character is going to die. This whole event is for him to be killed, and we just watch. So watching that or listening to the dialogue and watching the sequence of events happen, there's a part of you. Are you? Does Chris Tucker know he's about to get killed? Is that? Does he know he's off to get killed too? Is he in on it too with the audience? So this, <laughs> it's like everyone knows that you're dead. 
but no one's saying it. It's a very Ordell could have just shot him in the motel room. Yeah, right, right there in that wherever he was, motel. Yeah, wherever he was. Like, yeah, he didn't really have to put him in the trunk of the car. No, I mean this is all for this is all film nerdiness type dialogue. And, but he like, does it, then go the, to show Robert De Niro. So this I think right, was true. a he hey, to, yeah. I know he's got he, a prison. We haven't seen each other in a little bit. I want to kind of give you the right. how. I run my we're, business. We're on the same page. Yeah, yeah I want to make sure. Yeah, the same page, see, right? see this dude? You know, see what I've just done yeah. to him? So, like he says, who's Beaumont? He's an employee. I had to let go. I love the coolness with yeah. which he just is like so nonchalant and so cool. Like he said, he is a maniacal sociopath. Just, just in, in, yeah. in, in, the, in the classic sense. Like with this scene and the scene prior, I almost forgot. When we meet him and Max Cherry get together. When we first meet Max. Mm. And they're talking. And right. Robert Forrester... Speaking of bringing a guy, I mean, his first yeah, and just... only Academy-nominated role, he is so great in this film. Uh, I mean, he doesn't get Breaking Bad without this. And I love him in the, his Breaking Bad character. I almost feel like it's, I almost feel like Breaking, his Breaking Bad character, I don't know if you've watched Breaking Bad. Yeah, I did, I love it. But he's yeah. in Breaking Bad. I feel like his character in Breaking Bad is Max Cherry after he retired and he forgot to, and he just decided not to go with Jackie. You know, I, oh, feel, wow. I always feel like this is him. This is where the Max Cherry character would have ended up is like when he, where he shows up in Breaking Bad. But Robert Forrester and their little tete-a-tete where, you know, Ordell's trying to be all big and peacocky and flamboyant. Like, look, I'm a big shot. And he's like, all right, you right. All right, so you want me to know all these things. I just love how he just kind of takes the wind out of his sails. And one of the more striking comments in the film is when he says, what am I supposed to let white privilege or white guilt? And I was like, it's a jarring statement, but coming from a person from that time frame of who he is, right, feels genuine, doesn't it? Like, right. It's a shocking statement to hear him say, and I love the reaction that Ordell gives him, but it does feel... Very well, he genuine. says, Well, fine, here's your money, you know. When yeah, he, yeah, when he says that, yeah, yeah, interesting. Robert Forster, yeah, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, yeah, uh, for his Jack- Jackie Brown performance, his first award nomination of a major award, yeah. Again, Quinn's ability to take who, who's this guy, yeah, you know, what has he been in? Like, again, taking somebody out of obscurity in a, or washed up obscurity in a way and giving him the role of a lifetime. It's yeah. like, what, what did, what did Robert do to earn this? Well, he loved him in other movies. That was the thing yeah. is like, he, again, you know, like some, some of these people are just the fact that Tarantino fell in love with you in his childhood yeah. in his head. He's yeah. like, I got a Rolodex. These are the people I want to work with. I love their films. I want them to be in these movies. And he gets them in them. And half the time they're like, what? Like he didn't even have an agent when Tarantino sought him out. He had no agent. Like he hadn't been working in film. So Tarantino found him and, Grabbed him. Like his previous film, uh, like of any kind of like, yeah, you look at his filmography before Jackie Brown, it's just garbage. Yeah. Absolute garbage for years. Yeah. Like in 1993, he was in Maniac Cop Part 3. Like, come on. It's insane. Because he, like I said, he just wasn't given the roles and people didn't see him for anything outside of these yeah. movies they may have known him for. Kudos to Tarantino. That's, that is one of the things he is great at. He is great at picking the right characters and getting the right actors to give the performances he gets. And he's also great at picking the right music at the right moments. He has, he's just phenomenal. So what's your feeling on his picking actors now, like Kurt Russell or Brad Pitt? What are your feelings on his Brad Pitt use or Leo DiCaprio? Oh, I love the, la- I love the way, because they're not, they're aging now. They're not the stars anymore. And it was almost perfect. No, the- they're not the uh, they're not being hung on girls' walls anymore like they used to be, but they're not washed up. They're not washed up, but they are in that later part of their career where they're no longer technically. I mean, they can kind of be leading men, but they're not the they're not the box office draw they used to be. And I think they're in the form of their career, like De Niro. They're in that. I just want to do some good acting. I don't care about 
you know, making millions of dollars and being in the, the, the best movie. I don't want to be in the Titanics anymore. I want to be in films that I, I want to be able to really stretch my acting chops. And I think the two of them together, I mean, think about the two names that they both worked on a Tarantino yeah. film at the same time. That's crazy. You know, like it's, it's almost as, as impressive as what they were to do with Ocean's movies. But again, those are still like Clooney was still new. You know, like you look now, those Ocean movies, you go, wow, those, a lot of those guys have really trajected upwards since they did the Ocean, you know, 11, 12, and 13 movies. Right. So getting those guys all together again would probably be, you know, almost impossible with the money. But to see what he was able to do in that movie to grab both Brad Pitt and Leo to be the stars of the film. And I think what's great about them is they melt into those roles. So I don't see them as, oh, look, it's Brad Pitt on the screen. Or, hey, look, it's right. Leo. It's like there's Rick Dalton and there's his stunt double. You know what I mean? Like there are the two are yeah, Cliff Booth it. and Ricker right there. Yeah. And I was going to say, to answer my own question, I, I love I love Brad Pitt actually and Leo. I'm actually fans of theirs. So when they signed on to do this, I was I geeked right out. I was like, oh, my goodness. A Quentin Tarantino film with these two guys together. like And rightfully so, uh, what a way to end, uh, hopefully not end, but. You talk about the magnum opus of this uh, film. This is a good way to go out yeah. with Quentin Tarantino's yeah. Once Upon a yeah. Time. So I know we're not geeking out, but I just, I just, I, I just love how every film he's just done something. Other, it's a washed up, so to speak, actor or gives gives actors a second chance. But then he also elevates. What Brad Pitt's just a pretty face. No, no, he's actually a really good actor. And we all know that Leo's a good actor, too. But he's able to transform these, quote-unquote, pretty boys into these type of... Well, pretty boy, obviously. From Brad Pitt, it gets more pretty in this film. But but I love, I love these what he's able to do with these actors that you wouldn't think can do what they can do because he still brings them out even the A-list actors, which is Well, amazing. that's a great point because I was going to bring up Robert De Niro in this film. Like, De Niro yes, was... Yes, they did not get along well on the film at first. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't he, know that. Because he didn't like, you know, the, he, he thought he needed more dialogue. He originally wanted to be Max Cherry. He wanted all these things, but I think this is one of De Niro's best roles, and it's great because he comes out in the same year that Copland came out. And so, actually, some of the scenes mm-hmm. he filmed, he had to re-film in Copland he still had, you can see the mustache got a little bit longer because he was filming Jackie Brown. Oh. And similar to what Stallone did in yeah. Copland, I feel yeah. was De Niro did in this movie. He is a pothead yeah. through the whole movie. He can barely function. One of my favorite scenes is after they do the trial run, he's on the phone and he sits there and it's just ringing because he smokes so much pot with Melanie. His mind yeah. is fucking fried. And <laughs> Ordell's like, is she there? And he's like, uh-huh. And he just finally comes to. He has a tough time hanging up the phone. Like his role as a pothead, he plays brilliantly. And then when he finally comes to, you know, when he finally comes out of the smoke and they go on the actual money exchange and he like almost, you know, channels his Max Cady performance out of uh, Cape Fear. You're just like, whoa, you know, like he finally like the, the cloud is, has, has gone away. He's not smoking. He's like on now. He's on point. Now we get to see Lewis, even though he's still a fuck up. But just that those turns that he's able to do, he's sitting there watching the girl dance in front of him. And just like this, I don't know, such a subtle but just beautifully nuanced role from him to be able to be, you know, even the three minute <laughs> out of shape sex scene that he has. Yeah. You know, like there's <laughs> so much about it that's that great. Seconds. Yeah, it's just so much yeah, about it that's yeah. fantastic about his role that it's surprising at first he was like, you know, upset about it, but like I think he did a phenomenal job and such a subdued role. And it's, you know, this is De Niro. Two years earlier, yeah. he was in fucking heat. You know, like yeah. this is this, this guy is, no, is the it, man, you know, and the 90s is his big trajectory, I think, that got back into our psyche because, you know, besides being in heat, he's in Goodfellas, like he's in um, Cape Fear, like he is, you know, at the where I think right now DiCaprio and Pitt are, but he's in that wheelhouse where like he's, you know, middle age, he's starting to take on more of the adult roles, so he's going to get some real good ones for the decade. 
And then he comes into this role. He gets into a Tarantino movie, and he's just completely subdued. And same thing he did with Pacino. He takes the two biggest gangster actors of an era and makes them completely against type in the two roles at the end of getting in his films. Yeah, I can see why he might have been a little bit like, why aren't you giving me more as far as dollar goes? But there's a lot to be said about body acting and De Niro he did his classic you know frowny kind of face you know you know the, he does that head bob and <laughs> yeah but, but, but what was great about his performance in this film was he's catching everything he's watching the the interplay between Melanie and Ordell uh just and he is talking about slow burn like he's pretty passive he's pretty like low-key you know but he's also like tethering the line between being a little bit afraid of Ordell in some way because he actually narks on Melanie to yeah, well, he shows his loyalty, which is surprising how yeah. his end comes about because he was loyal the yeah. entire time and it didn't help him. Yeah, he, uh, yeah, very interesting character. And now, if you're to believe Stallone, Stallone apparently said that he was offered the role of Lewis before. De Niro. I heard the same, yes. Okay, now I believe it if we're talking about as far, and I say I love Sly, he's my favorite film actor, like I, I do podcasts about him, so he's my favorite screen actor, but sometimes he tells a little bit of fish tales, and I don't know why <laughs> that is. So, Well, he did start the Richard Gere uh, rumor mm. with the hamster. Well, yeah, well, yeah, because he does not like, but they, that. that's a true story, they do not like each other. Um, but that being said, I can see why... If it's true, Quentin would reach out to Sly because at this time in Sly's career, he was not doing well in the mid early nineties. Partially no. because of Tarantino. So Tarantino, I feel is like the grunge movement. Like grunge yes, killed yes. hair metal, yeah. Tarantino killed the action star. You know totally what I mean? Agree. So yeah. but in that same year, what my favorite role that I think um he's ever done, Sylvester, I love him in Copland. He should have won the Academy yeah. Award for that. He was brilliant yeah. in that film. I think he was a well, I talk about this on our podcast, but I won't say too much more. I would say that he is just a victim of everyone else doing a really good job too in the film. I think it was just is everyone did a good job. Yeah. Oh, agreed. Yeah, agreed. So, but he was yeah. So beautiful. Yeah. He was even better than everyone. But everyone everyone elevated their game uh, in that film, uh, De Niro included. So uh, so De Niro in this film, I I can, I was trying to watch it as I'm watching it with that information. Like, I wonder what Sly would do. And I, it's funny as I'm watching. I think I think Sly said the reason why he didn't do it though was because he had young daughters at the time. Oh, I, I guess you're saying the the sex. Even though yeah. it's a brief sex scene, it's not much. But it's I, a brief I get it. sex yep. scene. It, but he had young daughters at the and time. He's violent, and he's violent. And Lewis is violent towards women. Yep. He wasn't quite ready to be. He's never really played a bad character before. True. And so he, I don't think he's ready to shed that. So had he listed, I think if a, a, a non-family sly, a, a non-family man sly, would have taken on the role. Uh, but it's unfortunate that it's too bad because now that the daughters themselves are all adults now, it's irrelevant, you know, but I guess at the yeah. time of filming, you know, he didn't want to make a, but I would have been interested because I mean, Sly has done sex scenes, but I, I, I would have been interested to see how he would have handled that quick little romp against the couch because that's Sly's never done anything quite like that. But Robert De Niro, I don't know why he's able to do that kind of thing better or you kind of see Robert yeah. doing those type of sleazy kind of like yeah well because I think like you said I think more. Sly has always been the the hero the action hero right. for so long you know the underdog champion so it, it, yeah but that being said he did such a great turn in Copland I sometimes wonder that he may have taken the character from Copland his his performance and it would have been very similar to that of what he did in in this movie because they're, well, they're a, a similar very similar because I was just going to perfect I was just going to say that too that yeah the non dialogue Dialogue, kind of observing, sideline, tragic character. It would have he could have rolled right into it, yeah. Uh, but he is—he's one of the the spots in this movie. But again, one of the great moments too is bringing back Bridget Fonda. Mm-hmm. Is 
What makes her a great character? And obviously she's the sex pot, but she is so much more than that. She is just this fucking red hot poker that just jabs at yeah. people and keeps going. And that moment in the money exchange with them, and we I will be covering it this month on the Bible study. The, the way the two of them act together in that scene is, is unbelievable. There are moments I actually thought De Niro was going to fucking hit her in real. Like those yeah. moments I forgot this was a film, you know? And I was like, holy shit. In the same moment, you could see this fear in her face, but then when he didn't do anything, if you get a chance to rewatch it again and you see this moment, there's a moment right after they've got the bag and he literally says, I'm going to punch you in the fucking face. And she gives him the bag and, and then he doesn't know which way to go. Nope, that's towards Sears. Like she pokes at him and he finally turns off. There is a smile. Tarantino holds him and Sally Menke. They hold on this shot long enough for her to give this little shit grin of like, yeah. I've got it. And from that moment, it cuts. She's then like, well, if you two aren't the biggest fuck, it's like she's going yeah. after him. She gets De Niro to break character for a second. And oh, I think I they kept it in. When she says, when you robbed banks, did you lose your car there too? He smiles and then gets back into character. So almost like it works well for the character. Almost like he's like, you know, she made a good what point. What if those ad-libs a little I bit? don't know. It was fantastic. It's a great moment. But De Niro's quickly get, like, kind of gets back to that anger looking around. But she is just a constant button pusher. And I love that. Brother. She's such a smart ass. And it's funny. And she does it so good. And the whole Lewis. Like yeah. that. That is nails on a chalkboard. Like yeah. her, her demise great. comes, and it's unfortunate, but it's not shocking. <laughs> like it's a shocking moment. Like it was the most shocking moment to me because there had been such little violence in the film. It was like Marvin getting shot in the face. Like you didn't see it coming because when he didn't punch her in the face, you're like, okay, they're gonna get out of this. You're right. When he turns and shoots her. Again, I am not by any means saying there should be violence towards anybody, let alone women. But there was a moment in that where someone has just been bugging you the whole... And then you lose your mind. Like, you either yell at them. We've all had someone who's made a snap. And in that moment, I got to be honest with you. Whether it was a male or female, if someone... And I was Lewis, and we were in the situation, and someone kept going, Lewis, and just kept doing that, I'm going to be honest, I probably would have shot him too. I probably would have had enough at that moment in that stressful situation with that person hounding me that I might have turned and shot him too. he does give her the warning. He's like, look, he's like pleading with her. Like, just, just stop. Just don't, don't say another word, right? Just don't say anything. Just don't fuck. Like she had to say something. Then he goes, no, really don't say another fucking word. She goes, okay, Lewis. And he's just like, that's it. Like, I can't, like, I'm going to shoot this bitch right now. I can't do it. Cause we're going to get in the car and she's going to keep going at it. Like, he just knew that he had to do it then and there. And it was just one of those moments. Like it's dark humor, but I think Tarantino yeah, leads you into this thing where like, she has pushed so many buttons. You're like, oh my God, he just killed a woman. But you're like, you don't see her as violence against female. You're like, God, that gnat is finally no longer bothering me. It was just one of those moments you're just like, wow, I didn't see it coming, but she plays it so beautifully. Just such a great, constant wasper uh, mosquito in your ear the entire time. You're right. Well, you actually talked about my your question that you're going to ask me. What's your favorite scene in the film? It's, it's the parking lot scene. So there you go. We I, I agree with everything you say. Because we've watched her literally almost groom, try to groom Lewis to be hers. Like, I think she gives him sex early to kind of snare him. But she doesn't right. realize that Lewis is a loyal guy. And Lewis's right. loyalty does not, he doesn't get anything for it. He ends up getting no. fucking snuffed out by Ordell. And then, again, I think this is what makes Samuel Jackson such an amazing actor. He's one of those actors who's able to say things in a film, much like a Leo, where you know how good a person they are, so you love who they are, you love their dark turns, but you forgive them for whatever they say in a role, for like Leo in right. um, Django Unchained. His turn as Calvin Candy is unbelievable. 
one of the most reprehensible characters I ever put on screen. Similar in this, when he's like, you just couldn't punch her in the face? Yeah, I, like, I love it. You kind of take you him just back. Hit her. Like, yeah, you couldn't just, just hit her? Just hit her and I was like, oh, yeah. okay. And we, all we know is that, yes, there's definitely been some physical violence at times, and Melanie has definitely pushed his buttons to get him to that point. And it's just like, oh, it's surprising. But you do feel bad for Lewis. Because his loyalty got him killed. And Ordell's, whatever it is, desire to have this beach bunny, his beach blonde, whatever, gets himself taken in because of her. She is the reason the whole thing fucking falls apart. Well, Jackie's also coming for him, but really, she is the whole reason everything falls apart. Him and Lewis probably could have gone and done something. They were better as a, probably as a team, but she has destroyed that whole narrative. So now he's killed his partner. He's got no one left. He's got no one left. I mean, we've skipped over Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton. <laughs> Just to bring it in for I a know, second. Yeah, sure. He walks in with yeah. all the cock and so I love it every yeah. time he comes to that scene. Especially he's walking, chewing the gum. He's he's such a hot shot cop. He's just like the guy who loves his fucking job. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, and I love it. Out of sight that came out probably two years yeah. later. When he reprises yeah. his role as Ray Nicolette, absolutely fantastic that, that he's in it. Yeah. He didn't want to be in this movie. And I he is great in all his scenes as well. Like like you're saying, whenever he puts a person in they sometimes play against the type you're used to them playing, but they get such a performance out of it that it ends up becoming one of those moments you go, you look back and you start to go, where are some of the shiny moments in this person's career? And you go, oh, he was in a Tarantino film. You go, yeah, he was excellent in that role. Like You're like, oh my God, he was unbelievable. I didn't see him as Michael Keaton. I saw him as Ray Nicolette. Yeah, well, Michael's awesome. Michael Keaton's amazing. He's a great actor and it's always fun to see him and stuff. And he was 45 in this film. I know. Every time you say that, I realize we're his fucking age. Like, God damn it. Yeah. How are we that age yeah. now? How have we gotten yeah. to that age already? Yeah, it's insane. You know, he did a great job and yeah his swagger was perfect i definitely he almost made my pick for favorite character on in this film i think some of my favorite moments in the film and we touched on it earlier i love the little exchanges between ordell and max mm-hmm. i don't think max washes his hands ever when he uses the bathroom right we have <laughs> there are a couple of moments two moments he comes out of the bathroom in ordell i love it i didn't hear you wash your hand i fucking Love that movie. It's a laugh moment every time for me. I, and just the way he stares him down, just the death stare he gives Ordell. Yeah. Because Ordell's got a point on him. But to Max's credit, he doesn't then go wash his hands. No, he doesn't. He's just like, you know what? I'm riding the whole way. And then when Jackie shows up to see him and he comes out of the bathroom and he doesn't wash his hands either. She doesn't make mention of it, but he doesn't wash his hands twice. Twice yeah. in this film, he comes out of the bathroom. We don't know what he's been doing, but he hasn't washed his hands. And you just kind of, you're just like, God damn it. That's kind of, it's it's a weird thing. It's funny. But at the end of the day, I think this movie, with all its greatness, is a very subtle and beautiful mm-hmm. love story of two people who are in the midst of their life. The mid, you know, the, the I won't say the twilight, but they're in the autumn of their life. And right. when he goes to pick her up, and the music choice is fantastic, and she's walking. Again, ladies, if you're a Tarantino fan, this may be one of the reasons Jackie Brown is not glamorous when she comes walking to see Max right. Cherry. And yet he sees her in the light that she is. He sees her in all her worst, I guess you want to say. She's just come out of prison. She right. hasn't showered in a day or two. We don't know how long she's been sitting in, the, in prison. She still has her flight attendant's uniform, and she comes walking, and he instantly falls for her. He is like, whatever it is, but he sees her, and he's like, oh, my God. I mean, how many times do you think he's actually asked a person he's picked up to drive home to go get a drink or go do things for him? She takes his gun because she knows Ordell's coming for her, and he doesn't even have a problem. Like, he falls in the moment she walks towards him, and it's such a beautiful moment, and it's better than most romantic comedies have for, you know, she is in the dark coming out of life. Lock up, and this man falls in love with. Like, name another film that does that and doesn't do it with an irony to it. No, yeah, it's a 
it is a love story between these two. They trust each other. It's never consummated. Uh, they're they're never together, but they found each other. Basically, it's the right people at the wrong time. It's old school falling in love. Right. This is from 97. So this right. is back in the day where like you actually had to spend time with a person. It wasn't like social media, going to dating app. It wasn't, you know, like this instant gratification of quickly knowing everything and sending a dick pic in three minutes. It was like right. you actually went with somebody and you started to talk to them and it was that whole courtship and that's what they're going through. And there's that, there's the element that they both like each other. You can tell, but also they're in the middle of doing a fucking a con. This is a man who writes people on bonds for being in prison. And this woman, because of who she is and he just falls her and her story. And he, I don't want to say feel bad, for her, but he empathizes with her and he wants her to right. have the best. He's willing to go against all of his beliefs and pull a con. He's going to break the law, regardless of how, you know, even though it's not technically, you know, real people's money, but he's going to break the law. He's going to con the ATF, the federal government, for this woman. I mean, ladies, that's a smooth dude right there. And he is smooth as shit, too. Like, he is just smooth when he tells her, you know, about her ass. Like, he is smooth. (laughs) He is old school smooth. You know what I mean? Like, he's that old school dude who he is just smooth. He's got a way with the ladies. But it's such a beautiful, subtle love story that I think gets lost. A little bit, But I think that's what makes it good, is they don't consummate it. And then it's the little moments with when he goes and buys the Delphonics and then, then yeah, he's driving yeah, and later they, in the movie with Ordell at a very serious moment and he looks at him and he's like, you like the Delphonics? And he goes, yeah, they're pretty good. I just love pretty, his yeah. response. It just, it's such a cool little love story. Yeah, that, well, it's nice. And the way it ends at the end with the kiss in the office and she's like, you know, you're running a business here and he's on the phone and he wants to say goodbye to her, but she doesn't want to say goodbye. She just puts her hand up. and I don't know. Continue talking on the phone. We'll just leave it at this. You know, they, they left it with the kiss and no awkward goodbyes, just a walk away. Well, yeah. that brings me a question I wanted to ask you. Because a little bit before that, he talks about how he's going to retire from the business. Like, he's had enough. And I think he's going to retire right. because I think he wants to spend more time with her and, and, you know, and just kind of see how that goes. Right. My question is, do you think he ever retires in that no. moment? Because the great thing about this scene, it hangs on him a bit, but he goes out of focus. He's on the phone with her and then Jackie says goodbye and he's still talking to the lady and Jackie leaves and then he asks the lady can I can I call you back and he hangs up and he walks out of frame but he's still out of focus but he's still in the frame and he kind of puts his heads on his hand like he's actually contemplating did I just make the biggest mistake of my life or should I go follow this girl I love that it leaves it on that but do you think that he retires and do you think they ever actually get together post credit hmm. sequence I guess the romantic part of me is he maybe he knows where she's headed you know but I I don't know I, I think that's it. I think they don't see each other again. That's sad. It's more sad, but I think that's what... But you might be right. That, that's the other good thing about our love story is that everyone in normal's love stories get together at the end. And this one sure. just ends with I like they, they may do. not be together anymore because she's going to Spain yeah. and then he's going to be yeah. stuck there at the Bales Bonds. Yeah. My only thing before we kind of wrap up, sure. it comes to the end of the film. And there's an extra scene. So you, if you get a chance, anyone who has it, whether it's on your Blu-ray, your DVD, or the iTunes, there is some extended and cut scenes. And there's a scene okay. where Jackie, after the this whole thing, she goes and stays in a hotel and Max goes to visit her and they have a conversation and they kind of talk about the setup of what they're going to do. What did Keaton's character there, Nicolette, think was the reason that they had to go meet at Max here, like what was happening? That's the only part that's ever bothered me a little bit about the movie is I like the ending, but obviously... Ordell walks in and damn Jackie and like Ordell comes in sounding cool and then she's like he's got a gun you know all of a sudden Ray pops around the corner and he's got a gun and he just opens fire on him because obviously she doesn't want him to say shit always wonder what Ray thought the reason was that they were getting together and even in the extra scene they don't really talk much about it they talk about like 
Max asked her, like, you know, well, what if he says something that you don't want him to hear? And she goes, well, we have to make sure that, that doesn't happen. And again, it doesn't ruin the movie for me. I don't give a no, shit. There's other right, things right. we can talk about, but like, I don't want to overpick it. But there's just, you know, if we're going to talk about the film, we should that talk about be, some of the that flaws. That might be the problem. See, this is, I guess, to answer your question, and maybe this is a good note to end on regarding this film and Quentin's work on it is, okay, put it this way. The same reason why True Romance isn't really considered a Quentin Tarantino film is because he didn't direct it. And I think in some Agreed. ways the reason why a lot of people kind of sleep on Jackie Brown a little bit because it's not his original creation. And I think by adapting this from an original source, now granted it's got all the beats of a Quentin Tarantino filming style, character style, the quips, the jokes, the dark humor, the violence. I don't know how much of it's from the, the book, meaning it is based on an Elmer Leonard novel, which I know Quentin enjoys those type of novels. But I'm just curious to those who've read the book, maybe that answers your question why it went down the way it went down. I guess all I'm saying is that there is some disconnect between the fandom I think I have for this film regarding other films because it's not wholly his. That's fair. Completely fair. There's still a part of him that, that yeah, that he's beholden to source material. Yeah. Now, Yep. He like he enjoys the source material, and the same way I would look at a Star Trek film that even he directed. If he were to direct and write a Star Trek film, there'd be a part of me that wouldn't even consider that wholly his film because he still has source material that he needs to be beholden to. And what I like about other his other films that he's done from Django to Inglorious Bastards, to, of course, Once Upon a Time and Kill Bill. Yes, he draws from influences, but the story beats everything and everything. It's his. It's it's his script, his screenplay. So the confusion at the end, I was confused too because we see this part where Jackie Brown is practicing drawing the gun from the drawer to sh shoot and point. And we're thinking, oh, there's going to be a, some sort of like dialogue between Jackie and Ordell. It's going to go down. She's going to try shooting him. You think, oh, she's going to miss or the weapon's going to misfire. And there's going to be something else that happens that Ordell is taken care of maybe by, uh, by Max Cherry. This was all going through my head. So when he arrives with Max Cherry and it's in the dark, he's saying, hey, why is it dark in here? I'm like, oh, here we go. Here's a big tense moment between Jack. And then Ray comes around the corner and says, you know, hey, Ordell, what are you doing? You know, and then he's got a gun. And then the cop shoots without seeing the weapon. It's it was all very like, oh, well, that was convenient. It was it was actually. Yes, I felt the same. Yeah. So convenient as it was confusing, because yeah. why was she practicing the quick draw? If she never was going to do it was all yeah i don't know yeah no I was that, that's the yeah. only thing again it doesn't ruin the whole film for me because it's, there's so much great about the whole movie that i'm like oh i can overlook it and i have read rum punch and i'll be honest with you i don't oh, remember okay. a whole lot of it. it's been okay. i read it when i heard that he was sure. adapting it i went and got it and read it oh, okay i will tell you this there is a scene of violence that was taken out there is a scene where actually ray nicolette oh. and it may be where they arrest boma but uh there's an actual scene where like there's a shootout in one of the warehouses that ordell has the weapon at. Okay. Tarantino's even said that, you know, everyone was giving him shit about the violence in his films. This one, he kills the violence. Like, the violence is so minimal. There's very little in this film. Though. Beaumont is shown a shot off screen. I mean, like you said in that scene, he drives off. We crane up. We watch the gun flashes in the trunk. Right. Don't ever see him get shot. Melanie is technically shot off screen as well. We don't ever yeah. see her actually get shot. Same thing with Lewis. I mean, he, we see the blood, but he's actually, you know, his back is to us. We don't yeah. actually see the violence in him. Yeah. And then, then the same for Ordell. He's shot and he falls backwards. Yeah. So he really tone down the violence and you know yeah. people still didn't like it so oh well let's ask our guest 
some fucking questions. What was your favorite song on this amazing soundtrack? And I think every soundtrack, they're all so fucking amazing. Like, I don't hate a single soundtrack of all 12 of the films, but what is your favorite from the Jackie Brown? Quentin has that amazing ability, doesn't he? Where does he, how often does he use traditional score? Not very often, but later, once he started getting more yeah. cone, like he would actually take bits and pieces. He started that in Kill Bill. He would take bits and pieces. That's right. And put them in. And then more cone put, actually wrote once for the hateful eight. Everything else has been music or bits and pieces. Pieces taken from one and put another. That's great that he does that. That's kind of a very unique way to do your films. And I think that's great that Quentin does that. And he does it very well in this film, of course. And it is a unofficial homage to the uh, black films of the 70s and, and what have you. Obviously, it goes without saying. But and I feel terrible picking this as my pick because it's like the one white artist. <laughs> I don't like, oh, uh, right, right. You're terrible. You know, so it's, <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's like, there's a part of me is like, I, maybe I should do this. But I, I admit, I like Johnny Cash. And so when Tennessee Stud came on, that is a great song. I agree with you. It's, it's a phenomenal song. I'm not an R&B guy, and it's a shocking song too. It is. That maybe that's why because it was it was the one. So I guess it stuck out to me. So maybe a better way of saying it, I like the use of it. You know, I like how it was used. I agree. And the, no. the juxtaposition. Everyone loves that opening, 100th Street. What's it called again? Um, Across 110th Street. Yeah, that's a great song. I mean, it's such a fun song to hear. And I'm not an R&B guy, but again, Quentin seems to pick songs when he picks. I'm like, oh, I, th- I dig this. So I guess just exposure. I haven't been exposed to it. wasn't my upbringing. No, I agree. I don't think there's a, a wrong answer for soundtrack. But yeah, Tennessee Stud, I mean, the way it was used and the way it stuck out, I was like, oh, I, this answers that question. Because I had these questions as I was watching the movie. So that one stuck out to me. So. I, I like it. I like it. It could change the next time you watch a scene. I don't think there's a wrong answer when it comes to soundtracks. Now, we danced with this one. What was your favorite character from the film? You were leaning towards Ray Nicolette, but I think you've, right. ja- you've changed it. Well, I think it's going to it's a combination of the Lewis and Melanie couple. Okay. So I would go Lewis in general, again, by Robert De Niro, playing a little bit out of character, playing a little bit of a, a schlub, uh, a little bit of a tragic character, semi-pathetic, his tragic fall. I really enjoyed his arc. You know, you, you did see that kind of violent tendencies he had toward Melanie, of course, at the very end with the gunshot. But the way he snapped, that slow burn of a snap, I really enjoyed that performance where he's kind of very calm. I just got out of jail. I don't want to mess this up, but I'm also still just a criminal. He was never redeemed at all. And no. But I love their the, the Louis Melanie relationship was very fun to watch. And the way she did, even when she called him, uh, I don't remember when she said, you know, chicken shit. Remember yes, that part? yes. Yeah, that's a real dig at him. And I think that was the that's beginning the turning of this, point of what happens. Yeah. yeah. So just a very great side story or a part or story between both characters. So I'd say favorite character, Louis, but because of the uh, relationship with Melanie. Now, what was your favorite line and or monologue from the film? I don't know if this was anybody's really, but the... <sighs> Max Jerry said, half a million dollars will always be missed. That was such a great line because it was said, nobody owns this money. This doesn't belong to anybody. You know, if it goes missing, who will care? It's like, no, half a million dollars will always be missed. That's a great line. There's some point where money, when it becomes high enough, somebody's tracking it. And it also shows without, again, great character development by probably the writing from not only Mr. Elmer Leonard, but also then Tarantino's adaptation of it. But it shows that Max Jerry has been down this road before, maybe not taking money, yeah. but he's been places or had written places or where people have money has always mattered. Money's always missed. Even, I know it's half a million, but in some places, $5,000, $500, $100 is always going to be missed, depending on your level. Yeah. 
people have killed for less, for sure. <laughs> exactly, absolutely. <laughs> and another great line was about Melanie again from Ordell. It goes, you can't trust Melanie, but you can trust Melanie to be Melanie. She is his kryptonite. She is the yeah. reason he falls. It's tragic. It's tragic. Now, I think we already know what it is, but yeah. we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it. What is your favorite scene from this film? Well, I think it's a lot of people's favorite. And sometimes I hate, like, oh, I'm going to pick what everyone picks. But it, it is a classic scene for a reason. Yeah, the parking lot scene where that boiling point finally happens with this couple. They're having, like, it's almost like we're watching the dating, marriage, and divorce of, this, of these two <laughs> people. Like, they meet, they fall in love. It's not really happy, but this is what we see. We yeah. see from the dating to the time they have sex to consummate the relationship. Then they kind of hang out together. And then now they're fighting, and then he kills her. It's a, it's really... <laughs> it's an American love story. It's what it really yeah, is. it's an American love story. Absolutely. <laughs> and what I love about the sequence, too, is it reminds me of that Chris Rock bit. Remember when he talked about uh, OJ killing Anna Nicole? Yes, yes. Or, Nicole Simpson Brown, sorry, yeah. Nicole Simpson Brown, when he said, uh, no, he wouldn't do what OJ did, you know, but he understands it. <laughs> well, yeah, because he talks about like the guys driving around in his car wearing his shoes. Yeah, he's kind of yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I don't know, I pay for all that. I don't know. I know that I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> I, I would never murder my wife, but I get it. No, I yeah, like, like it. I said, like, I'm not condoning that he shot her in the parking lot, but I totally fucking understand. I've been there. Yeah. I can't say I wouldn't have maybe had a moment where I would have turned and shot her too. So I think in some ways, I, this sounds totally terrible. L- Lewis kind of played out every man's dream with the nagging wife. Shut up! Shut up! <laughs> and then he goes to the car and says, "Oh, see, this is right, right where I parked it. It's right here." He's still talking to her. She's lying dead at the parking lot. Oh, it's my. his vindication. It's such dark, great humor, but that's incredible acting and humor. You just know when they filmed that how much fun that was to film. Because when you film these kind of, I'd say gross but these dark like he murders someone in the parking lot but when you're an actor it must be a blast to film that kind of stuff it must be so much fun to play this murdering dick you know like i don't know if i was an actor i'd have a blast playing the bad guy i think And that's a wrap on our sixth episode. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Ryan Rebalkin, host of such podcasts as the Rocky Series Podcast, the Worst of the Best Podcast, and It's a Long Road, the Ramble Series Podcast, for joining me today. I had a fucking blast discussing our love of Tarantino while taking a deeper look at one of QT's most underappreciated films, Jackie Brown. Now, you can find the link to Ryan's podcast in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, be sure to join me again in two weeks as the cage-tastic son of a bitch known as Petros Petsilovis of the Cajun Podcast joins me once again, this time to dissect and discuss the money exchange scene involving Louis and Melanie from Jackie Brown. Until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.